You understand the meaning of the word foreboding. As in badness is happening right now. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Far too kind. Well, you guys are a hell of a duet here. Why'd you start harmonizing? Can I get an encore? Do you want more? Cook and roll with the Brooklyn boys. So for one last time, I need you. Because lobsters live for over 100 years. Now what the hell are you waiting for? For me, there should be no more. So for one last time, make some noise. That's for John Lennon, you Yankee fucking cunt. You're here. Bobby, Claire, about whom you've heard so much. You're having a baby? Didn't Jonathan tell you? I didn't know you two were, um... Lovers? We're not. Most parents aren't lovers. Mine weren't. I think you need a new haircut. I never really, you know, think about it. Well, I do. Bobby, what do you like about me? What? Do you think I'm attractive? Absolutely, I do. Well, there's just no smooth or sophisticated way to do this, is there? Where is everybody? Doesn't this all seem sort of strange? No, man. It's perfect. Bobby, I'm starting to feel a little extra. I just want everybody to be happy. What if I just couldn't do this? I gotta find him. He isn't lost. He left. Welcome back, everybody. This is Above the Title, a podcast about the state of the 21st century movie star, particularly Colin Farrell. I'm Connor. I'm Cole. And this week we are talking about the... 2004 film a home at the end of the world this is our first film from 2004 after getting out of this well we talked about kind of yeah connor (laughs) after getting out of the the uh the long stretch of 2003 with six colin farrell films i want to i want to congratulate you uh because i think this is the first time in like five episodes or something that you've remembered to actually introduce us uh, as opposed to just having us go into the the fucking Makes weeds sense. of it all. Yeah. <laughs> we are great at podcasting, gang. We're getting better week by week, I would We're say. We're getting better week by week. Yes. This is the uh this is the home at the end of the world episode. This is the first, maybe second 2004 film. I think if we're if we're looking at these years as like self-contained narratives like how we were kind of conceptualizing all those Ooh. 2003 yeah. movies as this like uh big year for him and 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 putting them all into conversation like this even if we want to shunt intermission over to that side for this reason even if we're only talking about home at the end of the world and alexander next week's movie these two as like the joint I know where you're going pair, and I'll say right now I agree with you do make a good example of like this is the bad year yeah Right. This is the year shit starts to go sideways for him professionally, artistically, even, let's say not so much personal life stuff. But there's another thing, too, where like if 2003 is the year that the world fell in love with Colin Farrell, 2004 is the year that all of that love was supposed to pay off and And none of it did. You know, what's interesting. We never really. I don't think we ever really mentioned this when we were in the 2003s, um, which is funny that we're still. Uh, do you know the deal with Jude Law's 2004? It's a very similar story to uh, it, to Colin. It, and... It's a it's a different story though, and that's what I think is interesting is that Jude Law is also in six movies in 2004. Yeah, but they are six 
much more high profile movies than Colin is in. Like they're, 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 they're in 2003. Yes, yes. If if yeah. Colin is overall still more famous than Jude Law is, Jude Law is making movies that land bigger in 2004. But that ruins Jude Law's career. Being in all these big movies at the same time ruins Jude Law's career because people feel like he's getting shoved down their throats. And that's yeah. why he never really takes off. That Colin's different, though, right? No one walks out of 2003 being annoyed that Colin Farrell's everywhere. It's that what you said. It's that they're waiting for him to take the next step, and it doesn't quite work. And I think that is more of a next week conversation than a this week conversation. <laughs> but I this week so. is kind yeah. of like the bit of the asterisk in the, in the start of the downfall. I think what separates the two Collins 2003 from Jude Law's 2004 there's I mean there's a there's a, a multitude of of differences at play here one is that Jude Law had been around for more than half a decade by that point I already say. an Oscar nominee already an Oscar nominee um Colin again this is like literally the third year of his career 2003 yes. and yes. it's the only the second year where he is getting meaningful leading roles in yes. like big budget productions within the Hollywood machine. Um, another thing though, I would say is when you're looking at the films that we looked at, including Veronica Guerin, including intermission, including not, not phone booth to its fullest extent, but I think somewhat being there where these are films that, I think we're never even made for a lot of people to see phone booth yes. like grossly outperforms what the expectations of it were before they had made it. And Colin Colin's ubiquitousness is more of a tabloid fascination at this yes. moment in time than as a fascination of a figure on the screen where I think Jude law is being utilized in that other direction, which is like, can I just it, briefly it, run through the Jude law thing? Yeah, just yeah. Why I also think because I think these movies also hurt because they are higher profile movies, um, like like you're saying. So he's also being touted Jude Law, another yeah. a, a similarly a British actor to Collins Irish, yes. but Law is being touted as like the second coming of like an Olivier, like yeah. the next well, generation of that style of actor. Th this is what I want to say. So this yeah. is his 2004. It's he remakes Alfie, which is the movie that makes Michael Caine like an international superstar. Yeah. Bombs, right? <laughs> so already you're on bad energy, right? Then he plays Errol Flynn in The Aviator. Uh, <laughs> yeah. A difficult task, but so many people in The Aviator are kind of asked to do the like, can you capture the essence of this like iconic famous movie star thing? Mm -hmm. I think he kind of whiffs it in The Aviator. So already Jude Law is like negatively comparing himself to two massive movie stars even if one of them is like one of the all-time pieces of shit it's still hurting <laughs> him then he's in sky captain which is an insane movie and a colossal bomb right and yeah. a hugely hyped movie i don't know if you remember that i the... i've never seen sky captain i Dude. i only know of it. i only Dude. know of it like i I know some of the character names and how yes. ridiculous they are. It's... And I only know of it in the terms of like the speed at which special effects were changing. Yes. It is the, it is the, the time when it was first, changed. it is the first movie to be shot entirely on a green screen. 
Yes. Um, it's the Sin City thing where if something is not being touched by a human being, it's digital. Do you know who plays the villain in Sky Captain? It is it Lawrence Olivier? It's Lawrence right? Olivier. Yeah. They 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 chopped up like bits and pieces of old Olivier photos, had like a cheap audio, had like a cheap render of his face because he's like an Oz head type yeah. deal, like in the it's Wizard like, of Oz. If I remember correctly. Um, Superman Returns does something similar with, with Brando, Brando yes. with like archival footage of Brando from one of the earlier Superman movies and this was like that idea but even more <laughs> even more uh, yeah. obtuse just the fact that they're just taking like random Lawrence yes. Olivier stuff. it's really bad yeah. I like Sky Captain because that movie's insane um, but the the Olivia says bad. So just uh, me clarify, not me not watching it. I, like I've always been oh, fascinated yeah. by the story of it, and it's I one so day I weird. will sit down and give it but, a watch. Again, a colossal bomb that was being talked about as like the next Star Wars, almost right. So that's yeah. that's another strike against him. He's in I Heart Huckabees, which is the movie that kind of craters the first wave David O. Russell stuff. Yeah, like another movie that's supposed to be big cratered. He's in a series of unfortunate events, which is supposed to be the next Harry Potter bombs right is and he then the narrator of that? he's he's lemony snicket yeah he's the narrator he's lemony snicket yeah and then and then he's in closer which is a hit but you know who it's a hit for it's a hit for clive owen mm-hmm. right like clive owen comes out of that movie looking good so and natalie portman's in that right and natalie port i'm talking yeah. male yeah but like yeah. yes that's the big natalie break but that is a different breed of movies to kind of the junk that colin is pumping out where the expectations are so much higher that almost it is the analogy to, to Collins 2004 in a way where now people are ready for him to yeah. be like the serious <laughs> actor. It's not even that's the, it's I think with this movie in particular, I, I don't want to speak to Alexander because we're going to do like 10 hours on Alexander next week. Um, and I haven't seen it in seven years. Um Get ready, listeners, for a lecture next week about (laughs) about antiquity and the classics. Um, I I don't even think that it's not so much that Colin doesn't deliver in this movie. It's that I think the movie doesn't deliver and Colin delivers in like a way people aren't expecting him to. Let's let's get into a home at the end of the world. Let's get into a home at the end of the world. I just want to say this off the bat. When I watched this last weekend. I I was not into it in any way whatsoever. I sure. thought it was a very poor um yes. I honestly I thought this the direction was so poor to the extent that I wasn't even really thinking about like other aspects of the film. Interesting. But Cole, this is maybe the quickest turnaround I've ever had of a film. And maybe possibly Ooh. because of the rewatching cycle of this podcast. That's like, I'm, I'm watching films twice. So you did, you, you have watched it twice now. I have watched it twice now when I rewatched it this morning and I was more, I think what bothered me so much last week. And I definitely want to get into this more throughout this episode. And I, this, this is going to be one of those episodes where I do want to talk about the content of this film a lot. I think. Yes. Um, is that I was not prepared for the sentimentality of this, mm-hmm. uh, especially that in conjunction with the kind of like very glossy filmmaking at hand. Um, I found it overbearing and honestly like pretty suffocating. And 
Interesting. Which, oddly enough, I never had this feeling while watching Daredevil, maybe because that movie's like Daredevil and SWAT are so weird in a sense that like I never had the urge to turn it off. But for this one, when I was watching it last week, I was really it was really running my patience low. And I was having moments where I was like, I got to just turn this off and come back to it in an hour. When I was watching it this morning and I was more prepared to deal with its aesthetic, again, glossiness, its its manicuredness, and then even past that, like just the the tone of the film itself, the tone of the dialogue, the the way you can tell the actors are being directed into interacting with each other on screen and within the space, I think knowing where the film was going, having that precognizance of what I was about to see, it allowed me to interact more with the actual like thematic content at hand and actually, actually have like build a relationship with the things that the film is trying to provoke within you. I had a much better time watching it. That said, do I think this is a good film? I don't know if I would go that far. It's, I I wish I had read the book. I'm not sure how, like, I'm not sure how motivated I am now to read the book. Um, I think, see, I'm actually, I am very motivated to read the book right now. Yeah. Because I I don't think this movie is particularly well-directed, but I think, I think at the core of it, I'm, I'm walking away with the sense that this is a bad script. That is poor. It is a bad script that is then also poorly directed. Um, and yeah. so this this movie, Home at the End of the World, this was uh, this is based on a novel by Michael Cunningham, who wrote The Hours, which had just won an Oscar for Nicole Kidman. And um, he also I, wrote this script, right? Yes. Well, that's what I'm saying is yeah. I, I have never read The Hours. I have seen The Hours several times. I think The Hours is like a masterpiece. Uh, yeah. I don't know where you fall in that movie. I well, think that can, we, can we sidebar special. for just a minute? Yeah. I don't think you can talk about this without acknowledging the, the hours in some sense. Yes. The hours I have seen one time. I think it is one of those films that is so taut and so tightly wound. And it feels like you, it's one of those films that feels like you are not, standing in the center of a carousel which is what this film feels like that's a film where you feel like you are on the carousel yeah and you feel like you are along for the ride and but you but you feel that sense of a roller coaster where the track is already laid out ahead yeah you know what i mean yes and a home at the end of the world i think because of the thematic similarities although like it's a very different story it's a very different it's very it's interested in very different aspects of human relationships and human emotion i think it's i think the story itself is told in a way that in different hands could provoke that kind of feeling where you're losing your footing but in a good sense as the viewer do you know the, you know what I'm saying? When you watch point, a film like The Hours, it might feel like you're losing yes. your footing because it's it's moving at just a step ahead of you to the point that you can't really throw your own expectations at the screen because it's already moving on to the next thing and you have to catch up to it. And it's making you feel things in a way that um, are 
coming from deep enough within to an extent that you don't necessarily you're not very cognitive of the actual like intellectual things that you're feeling while you're watching it does that make sense what i'm saying yes and a home at the end of the world just does not have that yeah that speed to it even though i'm not necessarily talking about a speed of editing it just doesn't have that pro- propulsivity of storytelling that well, the, the like problem that the problem is and this is what i was trying to get at by, by, by making this comparison because michael cunningham did write this screenplay is i think this really screams to me an author trying to pare down his own work right trying like like this is this is less an active adaptation than it is someone self-editing the thing they've already written to to take it down from 400 pages to 90 pages right and and honestly even less than 90 pages because a screenplay page and a prose page screenplay page has way less information than a prose page does and it's also like understanding that you know again i have not read the novel but i understand the novel is like split perspectives mm-hmm. that it that it bounces between the two protagonists and all the like secondary characters also have like chapters told from their perspectives as well that is also Whereas, my understanding of yes, what the novel is like which this movie does not this movie is very pointedly from one character's pov that you see that like though that strikes me as a peering down choice and when you talk about this almost like ungainly sluggish rhythm this thing has i really do think that when we talk about movies being too long (laughs) i think the conversation is people don't actually understand what they're saying when people say they think a movie is too long that they think the movie is too slow that is actually what they are saying space and length do not have anything to do with each other Plenty of movies that are three, four, even five hours long can kind of like truck by, you know, something like the Irishman or uh, two different aspects, the Irishman and Jean Dielman, right? Two (laughs) movies that are the same length, but are radical different paces, but both kind of shoot by because they both understand the rhythms they need to be locked into. Whereas a movie like this is only 90 minutes long. But I feel like it honestly needs to be almost an hour longer because of how much of an epic it is in scope that it has this strange sensation of everything is rushed, which means nothing lands, which means everything feels sluggish. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think I said the same exact thing have when the week we did Daredevil, when I watched the yeah. theatrical cut and then I watched the director's cut. The director's cut is, if I remember correctly, it's only 25 minutes longer than the theatrical cut. But having those little extra bits of information makes every scene carry infinitely, exponentially more weight than they do in the theatrical cut. Which Um, makes scenes matter, which which makes makes scenes feel like they're not a waste of time, which makes everything feel more fast paced. Yes, exactly. Because you're not you're not the best thing. The best thing a movie can do to the viewer, in my opinion, literally the best thing a movie can do is to completely envelop you in the sense that you're not thinking about the world that's existing outside of the movie theater. Yeah. And that, that doesn't mean that you're not thinking about your own experiences or your own relationships to other people or your own emotions or just the, the issues that you may be dealing with in your everyday life. It's just that you're not thinking about the simultaneous world that is running outside of the movie theater. And 
it that that doesn't necessarily mean that the movie has to be a certain length. It just means that the movie has to hold your attention throughout yes. the time, you know, and it has to make you want to be there. It has to make you feel invested in what's happening. And I agree with you that like there are many situations where films are butchered by what seems like a multitude of producers that are in the industry that probably don't have any right to be <laughs> to have a say over what makes a film better or worse um, mm-hmm. are mandating that films have to be a certain length because that stipulates a certain amount of money that could be made at the box office that they're trying to maximize. And how many examples are there where like an added 25 minutes here and there would make the film a better film in the long run. And something or, that people honestly, are, we're going to talk about it next week. Maybe yeah. the other direction as well. Well, um, you know, it does happen in the other direction. Yeah. I think it happens more often in the other direction, which is why more commonplace moviegoers have the opinion that shorter films are better than longer films. Yes. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I want to get into the plot synopsis. Before we get the plot synopsis, I just I just want to touch on my history with this movie. Um, yeah. Just because I, I think it's it, it it provides an interesting contrast to what you said about your past week. I have literally so, no I have literally no history. But but film, I'm literally so, saying just yeah. just what you said earlier about watching it and then waiting a week and then watching it again. Like, I, I think what I'm about to say is an interesting contrast set. So I, I watched this movie this morning. I remember when this movie came out, but I mostly just kind of remember it as being like one of the first cases I remember of something having like failed Oscar buzz. Like, mm. I remember it kind of being chatted about, uh, as like, oh, maybe a potential call-in Oscar play early, like early in 2004, and then coming out to crickets and then never thinking about it again, right? Like that was me following it away until about two years ago when the wonderful podcast This Had Oscar Buzz did an episode on this movie that they were, I think, fairly effusive about, if I remember the, the episode correctly. Um, they like it. They they, 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 they they kind of talk about this in a joke, but I had no idea yeah. what this movie was about until they did that episode. And like I said, I love the hours. The stuff I most love in the hours is the Meryl Streep stuff, right? The East Village, early AIDS, like death of Bohemia stuff that really has always struck me as like, I love Rent, but is a much better and more honest version of Rent, right? And finding out that when I listen to that podcast, that that's what this movie is about, right? That this yeah. is really in so many ways, the, the contemporary stuff in the hours as a full story. This was the novel he wrote right before he wrote the hours really made me excited to see it. And then I kind of sat on it two years, but I was very excited to watch it this morning. And then I watched it and I was just like, did nothing for me almost like we will get into it, but completely underwhelmed me. But then as I was like drafting the plot synopsis in my head, earlier before we started recording i kind of got to the end and was like god is that movie actually very affecting and i don't think it is but i had that same kind of feeling where i was like reflecting on the movie and being like am i maybe liking it more and i think it's probably just that i would like the novel because i don't think the movie works but i'm about to lay out what happens in this movie and yeah. i'm probably going to get a little choked up because i think that the, the the plot beats of the narrative are actually fairly effective they're just not well executed. I think that's what I was getting at earlier yeah. when I was saying that I had a much better time watching it this time. It, to me, it's almost so like you and I were movie guys as movie guys come. You know, sure. this is what we're about. I think 
for me, I always kind of struggled with theater. I'll just, I'll just broad term it. Like I wasn't a theater kid in high school. Um, Stuff on the stage was not necessarily an aspect of what I was interested in when I was learning about film early on. I just got back from a Broadway show today. So like, what'd you see? (laughs) Clearly changed. I saw the uh, sign out of uh, Sidney Bernstein's window. Um, with never heard of it. and oh, uh, Oscar Isaac. Um, it was okay. it was really good. I don't want to talk about it because it's it's maybe the best play I've ever seen in my entire life, and and I don't okay. I, hey. I don't want to get I don't want to get too emotional about it right now while we're talking about this. But I do think there is an aspect to this film that um, uh, feels very uh, theater adjacent, and I think. There is there is something to be said for people who enjoy a certain type of film. Like for me personally, the ones that I started watching early on that got me interested in cinema and wanting to learn more about it, that kind of disagrees with the most prominent aspects of theater and particularly musical theater. And I think there is some kind of adjustment that needs to be made to accept musical theater for what it is. And then finally get to understand it and get, and to be able to enjoy it um, and to be able to feel like you're a part of the storytelling and the way that it's being told. And I, I just, I feel like there's enough of that theater community mentality in this film that maybe disrupts it from what we consider to be good cinematic storytelling. And that's Maybe. not necessarily. See, I, I disagree. And the reason I'm going to disagree is because are you aware that Michael Mayer is like maybe the best living director of the American stage musical? I am. And that's why I'm bringing yeah. this up. But that's, that's yeah. the thing is that Michael Mayer, who directed this movie, let, let's get into this. Then we'll get into plus setups, but I think this is important is like I said, an incredible stage director. He he cut his teeth. He he did a revamped and rewritten by him revival of You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown in the late yeah. 90s. That was I think a that was hit. the first thing that got him a lot of recognition. That gets him a lot of recognition. Then he does Thoroughly Modern Millie. He gets this job off of doing Thoroughly Modern Millie. But right after this, he does Spring Awakening which is like a seismic hit and really reinvents himself as this like very formally intense and almost like borderline Brechtian reinventor of the musical. Like whether he's doing a work like Spring Awakening, which obviously has like Brechtian roots itself, or even taking that to like when he did American Idiot, he revamped American Idiot the same way. He revamped Hedvig the same way. Um, I've, I've heard incredible things about his off-Broadway production of Little Shop of Horrors, which has been running for like four years now and there's no intent to transfer to Broadway. They got him to do the Funny Girl revival, right? Like, but his his stuff on the stage is so like formally audacious in how it's laid out and it's like strict minimalism. Um, and just its set design being, he has this very like, contemporary industrial like almost intimidating like design aesthetic that he puts on a lot of his stage shows that like i would actually want to see more of this like very progressive artist uh 
in in this movie where this movie is so anodyne and tepid and it's what i would think of like the sort of milk toast broadway productions that michael mayer almost feels like he's always chafing against as a stage director that's who he is as a film director which is extra interesting because i'm going to go ahead and assume connor you did not watch the spring awakening documentary that hbo max put out last year (laughs) No, I haven't. Yes, I did because I'm fucking trash, right? (laughs) I'm horrible. He talks a lot in that documentary about not wanting to do Spring Awakening because he felt it would be too much of a distraction from his film career. Oh, his film career does not exist. Yeah. Right. He is not a film director. He has made four movies. They have all bombed. He is like an ecstatic Broadway director, but he clearly to some degree wants to be this more milquetoast film director. Did you know he made a Netflix Christmas rom-com a few years ago? I did, but I did not note the name of it because I was trying to like minimalize the amount of stuff I was um, <laughs> taking in for my like little cheat cheat for this, and that just felt like it had no. Uh, he did. Do Do you remember Happiest Season, the really bad Clea Duvall movie with Kristen Stewart and Mackenzie Davis? Ah, uh, yes, yes. The, the, yeah. the Hulu's that was Hulu's lesbian Christmas rom com. Netflix yeah. has a movie called Single All the Way, which is about gay men, and it's basically the premise completely inverted. Like it was oh, a very much a knockoff. So Happiest Season is um, a closeted woman takes her girlfriend home to visit her parents and talks her girlfriend into pretending to be her roommate. Like that was the premise of that movie. Um, where happiest season is a gay guy goes home to meet his parents and brings his roommate along and tells his roommate to pretend to be his boyfriend, right? So it was Netflix clearly doing a knockoff of that. That's the kind of director Michael Mayer is as a filmmaker. Now, need I remind you he did Funny Girl on Broadway, which is like the sensation of the moment, even for if it was for bad reasons, like... One of those things, one of those careers is not like the other. And we're talking about the one that kind of sucks. Yeah. Um, I saw his funny girl. It, it was, it was all right. Who'd you see it with? I saw it with uh, Leah Michelle. That, that's what everyone yeah. said. Is Everyone said it was good except for Beanie Feldstein. Uh, yeah, that's, I mean, that's what the common sentiment seemed to be um, when the initial run was happening. Uh, I, it, it does, it is. Leah Michelle feels like i know that she has a long going a long-standing relationship with the music from that musical like in the <laughs> public eye. don't do not get me started <laughs> no no but i was there when you're actually dealing with the content of that musical she she feels like utterly wrong for the role <laughs> yeah does that make sense yeah, yeah. Um, um did you ever see his hedvig i have the angry inch? No. have you seen the movie no, you've never seen the movie. So, yeah. so that that show, right? Originally, when it was off Broadway, it was originally like a drag and cabaret act that yeah. got like structured into like a, a a one act like monologue piece with songs in it, right? And they really rewrote it for the movie to make it work as a movie. So the premise of the movie is that this woman, this non-binary woman, whatever it it's predates our understanding of different language, is her ex-boyfriend has stolen all the songs that she's written and she is stalking him 
And the movie follows her. She plays like shitty gigs in like tiny venues that are in the same city as where he's playing an arena show. So that's the conceit of the movie. Uh, like that's is the she playing the same it. music that he's playing? Yes, it's her music? she's playing the same music. And, uh, and yeah. when she's playing, she'll always allude to the fact that he's in an arena doing shittier versions of the same songs. When Michael Mayer takes this thing to Broadway, I know that Michael Mayer has this very like strange industrial aesthetic. And I, I saw it on Broadway with Neil Patrick Harris, like very shortly after it opened. I, I, I go in and I swear to God, the stage is the set decoration is a bombed out car sitting on the stage, like a, like an exploded car <laughs> and shrapnel hanging everywhere from the ceiling. And I am like, what the fuck is Michael Mayer doing? How is he getting his weird industrial fetish into this? The bit of the stage show is that her famous ex-boyfriend is doing a Springsteen on Broadway style, like engagement on Broadway. <laughs> And she has rented out the theater for a recently closed Hurt Locker musical and hasn't even bothered cleaning off the stage. And he's oh doing his set next door. <laughs> it's, it's such a good bit. God, you should fucking see Hedwig and the Angry Inch Connor. It's right, one I'll of the it. best movies. I'll seek it out now. That's yeah. in the movie. Or that's, no, that's, that's, in the, the that's in the stage show. Okay. <laughs> when they brought it to Broadway about 10 years ago with, um, with Neil Patrick Harris. Because uh, they had to revamp the thing to be like a Broadway musical. No, it, yeah, I get it. Even yeah. the off-Broadway version was not that structured. A lot of the structure was a movie, and then you have to revamp that. Anyway, this is not about Hedvig. I wish this was about Hedvig. There's no one in Hedvig we could ever really do, uh, unfortunately. Um, well, maybe we'll have like a maybe we'll have like a Cole's choice. A Cole's choice where we talk about. Yeah. It. All no, four but, John Cameron Mitchell movies. But I didn't even mean I didn't even necessarily mean like aesthetically or visually. We could do Michael Pitt. The theater aspect of it. Yeah. No, but, tonal. I no, I'm not saying aesthetically either. I am saying like there are things like that I spiritually. Just, before we gotta do the you you have to do the plot synopsis, but before we get to it, there are just aspects of like like the the amount of times that the characters are trying to put plainly how they're feeling as articulate as they possibly can. The way that the music is like completely in sync with what you're seeing happen on screen. And just the fact that there always seems to be somebody talking and there's not a lot of silence that's being dealt with. Like those are all very like theater adjacent aspects of the way that this film was made. You know what I mean? I I understand what you're saying. It's the issue with its sentimentality that I was having problems with the first time I watched it. Uh, which works on theater like it works on the stage it just doesn't necessarily translate to the screen in a way that utilizes the gifts that all that cinema has to offer yes i i understand what you're saying what i am just saying is that mayor as a stage director has a more brechtian formalist like Mm -hmm. direct address style that doesn't necessarily have those aspects that i think you're identifying I just but, think there's something like inherent about the stage. Maybe he also develops that. a lot of that style coming off this movie. So yeah, that is true. But even you're a good man. Charlie Brown is like semi Brechtian in it's like complete refusal to, to hold to like a straight narrative. Yeah. But I think even Brecht, like the way Brecht has been used in cinema to great success is a 
it's 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 a it's like a, a very sharp angle turn from the way that Brecht is used on stage. You know what True. I mean? True. Like you even have to adapt Brecht. Like you have to adapt True. the tenets of Brecht to fit cinema. You can't. I, you know what I mean? I do think something like Dogville, formally, tonally, rhythmically, yeah. not content-wise, <laughs> right? Not ideologically, but like rhythmically, I do think something like Dogville has a little more in tune with Mayor's stage work than this does mm-hmm. right but i get what you're saying about the broader that that there's that sondheim quote about how like musicals don't work on the screen because the screen has close-ups um, yes yeah and and this does I, the, the the rhythms are off but at the same time i feel like you want this movie to slow down and stop and almost you do want a song because a song would ground things uh, the score in this movie, which sucks, by the way, is by Duncan Sheik, who does write the music for Spring Awakening. So that is a, a, a good thing that comes out of this collaboration. But with, also with the needle drops, like this movie wants to be a the, musical. It wants yes. to be a musical. Yeah. Yes. How do we feel about the needle drops in this? Cool. Do the do the plot synopsis. Because I'm just going to say. Just do the plot synopsis. And we'll I'm just going to say. I think all the songs in this movie fucking slap, and I don't think there's a single good needle drop in this I, movie. Yeah, they're I think all so chintzy. I think that's the most accurate thing to say about it. Okay. Um, this week's well, movie, now I have to we say have... it. Now I have to say it before you do the the positives. To go off what you're saying, I think what happens is every single time a song starts playing in this movie, your brain goes, "Oh, I like that song." And then your brain immediately thereafter goes, I don't want to listen to the song right now yeah. <laughs> while you're oh, seeing what's happening on screen. Yeah. I, I will say we might be 40 minutes into this episode. We have only been talking about this movie though. Like we're very good. We've been very good. We've been bad on some other episodes. What's the worst needle drop in this movie? And why is it Neil and Julia down in the schoolyard? I mean, that, that one's, that one's by far the worst one because that one's the worst. It, well, part of it is as aged the worst because of how that song is used in like every Wes Anderson, like parody yes. of the last 15, 20 years. Um, again, like this came out in 2004. Is that a Wes Anderson movie? I have no idea, but I feel like. It's it, in the Royal Tenenbaums. It's in the Royal Tenenbaums. That's... It's in, it is, it, I think what made that song so associated with Anderson and his style is it's the song that plays in the SNL yes. horror movie Wes Anderson parody the with a <laughs> only good Wes Anderson parody anyone has ever done. Yeah, the most uh, with Edward Norton. And part of Edward it is just like Edward Norton knows Wes Anderson and he like but understands that style. It's so. that so many people like do their shitty Wes Anderson parodies and yeah. they don't get anywhere beyond like someone standing in the center of the frame and, and just that like one, symmetrical like, shots yeah and that yeah. one gets like so many specific gags about things he does i always lose it when they like make the list of like yeah. weapons they yeah. have <laughs> and it just becomes like the shots of all these objects on the counter it's like a one. slingshot a mouse trap yeah right? it's like so like that. yeah wes anderson parodies are like the lowest hanging fruit um and they always suck uh, and that one's actually pretty funny. Well, let let me let me let me kind of explain why I think that one works so much is because another thing that people just seem to not understand about Wes Anderson is if his films 
as a whole don't necessarily like if you look at each individual film the film itself might not fall into a specific genre but you look yeah. at segments from the films and you can yes. tell that like there are segments that are odes homages like nodding of the head to specific genres and those specific yes. uh motifs from those genres and like what makes that so funny is that you could think that you, you think that Wes Anderson could do some kind of horror movie or horror segment yes. within one of his films. Uh, can I just say the other reason that I, I hate most Wes Anderson parodies? Um, and then I promise you I will do the plug. <laughs> yeah, no, I go promise for it. Uh, everyone seems to think that the joke is that Wes Anderson makes these like incredibly antiseptic cutesy little movies about people speaking in a deadpan mm-hmm, and it just yeah. pisses me off because the actual human being Wes Anderson is like one of the most passionate and fucking erotic directors alive today and mm-hmm. those stupid little jokes everyone makes about his movies do not tap into the fact that like you can say whatever you want, but those actual movies will fucking tear your heart out of your chest. Con Farrell should work with Wes Anderson. I think hundred percent, a hundred percent. He nails if the Lanthimos so well. Cause that's Lanthimos what I was going to say. I was Wes like, Anderson. Anybody, anybody, anybody that can succeed in a Lanthimos film, I think can work with any auteur yes. and be like the greatest tool to that auteur. Yes. Mm-hmm. All right, this week's episode, this might be a record for us. This week's episode is the 2004 film, A Home at the End of the World. As we said, directed by Michael Mayer. As we said, written by Michael Cunningham, based on his novel, uh, produced by Christine Vachon. That's cool. And Tom Holchi. That's wild. Um, Stars, Colin Farrell, Dallas Roberts, Robin Wright Penn, Sissy Spacek, and I guess Matt Frewer in like one scene. Um. Okay, let me just gather my thoughts for a second. You have 40 seconds. No, I'm just kidding. Cool. Okay. <laughs> let me get some names up here. Bobby. Bobby, Jonathan, Jonathan and Claire, Claire and Alice. Okay. Yeah. I kept wanting to call the Dallas Roberts character Bobby. Bill uh, and Ted and whatever. <laughs> it is the early 1970s in Cleveland, and teenager Bobby Morrow has lost his brother, his mother, and his father in separate tragic events. Uh, He is taken in by the family of his nerdy good friend, Jonathan. Bobby, teenage Bobby proceeds to indoctrinate Jonathan and his mother, Alice, played by Sissy Spacek, into the contemporary hip counterculture, introducing them to good music and to marijuana and becomes embraced by the family. As this is happening, young Jonathan, who is a burgeoning homosexual, uh, begins to have early sexual experiences, consensual sexual experiences with Bobby. Uh, eventually all these things come to a head and Jonathan pledges that he is going to leave Cleveland when he graduates high school. The film then cuts forward to 1982. Jonathan has been living in New York, uh, but Bobby now having fully become official, I said semi adopted by Jonathan's parents still lives in Cleveland with Jonathan's parents, who he has a very good relationship with. Uh, When they decide to move to Arizona, they convince him that it is time for him to finally leave the nest. And he moves in with Jonathan in New York, where Jonathan has become a young gay scenester in the early 80s East Village and is living with an older bohemian named Claire, played by Robin Penn. Bobby is played by Colin Farrell. Jonathan is played by Dallas Roberts. Jonathan and Claire are not a couple but plan to spend their lives together and have a kid. But unfortunately, 
Bobby and Claire immediately hit it off and start sleeping together. This alienates Jonathan as he feels betrayed by both of them. He moves to Arizona to be with his parents. But when his father dies and Claire becomes pregnant, the three reunite and decide to move to upstate New York to build a home and form a strange thruple family together to raise their daughter together. Uh, Bobby and Jonathan open a restaurant in Woodstock, New York. And this, along with the fact that Jonathan starts to show signs of having AIDS, starts to re-cement the bond that these two men, who are maybe flirtatious, who are maybe lovers, who are maybe brothers, have with each other, which in turn starts to then alienate Claire, who feels like she's being shafted to being the mother figure. Claire then decides to leave New York with their daughter and go to Philadelphia. She tells Bobby to come with her, but Bobby decides to stay with Jonathan. And the movie ends on a note that these two men are going to spend the rest of however much longer Jonathan has on this earth as he is dying together in this strange relationship they've made with each other. That was a little more long-winded than I wanted it to be. But like I said, I think that's a really affecting story that is told. Mm-hmm. about the strange blurred lines of sexual identification and and the way we can kind of craft families that exist outside of the very heteronormative standard and the way those heteronormative standards can kind of butt heads with these more idealistic dreams of how we want to shape our lives, right? I think all that stuff's very affecting. I just don't really think any of it works. On paper, it's kind of like a devastating tale yeah. of a man child who everybody in his life has died off essentially with like exception of Claire and Alice. But also someone who it's not just that everyone in his life has died. It's someone who really does feel like all he wants to do is love people. Mm -hmm. And a hundred percent. The world does not seem willing to accept It's not even like polyamory per se, even though I think there is a sort of polyamorous energy to them. It's more that just he just wants to just love everyone in such an open way. And people can't handle the fact that they're not going to be the only person that Bobby loves to this degree. And that's where the tragedy erupts, right? Is that that the, the, the idyllic world that he almost wants to live, it just can't happen because life is uglier than that mm-hmm. people die They're, people get jealous people everybody need jobs. seems everybody seems so worried that they are not the one that he loves the most when he seems to love the person bobby always loves the most is the person who needs it the most yeah you but know what i'm saying honestly that is even the, the person the, the, the moment i knew that this movie had like lost me is when the time skip happens about 30 minutes in yes. and Colin Farrell shows up. You do not see Colin time. Farrell or, or Dallas Roberts until 30 minutes. In the yes. Movie. Because the yeah. first, for the first 30 minutes of this movie, it is about them as teenage boys um, played by child actors. Yes. But when Colin shows up for the first time and it's probably been about seven years, 10, actually maybe he, even 10 years. Alice says that he is 24 Yes. Um, or maybe the dad, maybe the dad says, uh, Jonathan's dad. He no, who, he is he is 24 in 1982. Yeah. And the last time you see Jonathan is when he is uh 17. But I yeah. I think it's like he probably was 18 when he left for college. Yeah, but I also think yeah. that a lot of the teenage stuff takes place over the course of several years, kind of it definitely does quietly. Yeah. 
but I think this, this movie time, takes place over like a pretty long stretch of time. The but, movie, okay, yeah. so if if we go by like the explicit dates that are given, the movie starts with a prologue when Bobby is a child, not even a teenager, a child. He's nine 19, years old in 1967, mm-hmm. and it explicitly says 1967, and then it jumps ahead to when he's in high school. And the then the first jumps- scene, the first scene when he's in high school, I'm my assumption is that he's like a sophomore. So he's like 15 yeah. or 16. So, so that's yeah. why I said early 70s. So I think it jumps ahead probably like 1974 or something. And then it jumps ahead again to 1982, which is the last like explicit major time skip when he's 24. My guess would be that the rest of the movie, the, the, the last hour of the movie, starting from when the adult actors show up, does probably cover two or three years i think the like the casual awareness that they have of aids at the end of it is makes it pretty clear that like they are at gotta be 85 or 86 they are far enough into the the aids pandemic that they you know what carposis you know what carposis means they never have to mention the word aids or hiv or the virus so so i would guess this movie probably all told takes place over the course of 20 years he also gets claire pregnant they have a baby the baby yeah. seems to be like not a year a old probably a couple weeks old when yeah. by the time the baby leaves um, yeah but that's one of the strange things about this pacing of this movie is is that it has these two very explicit lengthy time skips with recast actors Mm -hmm. in the first half hour but then there is also supposed to be a sense of that almost terms of endearment or boyhood style sense where like long stretches can kind of quietly pass between scenes without necessarily being signposted which is a rhythm i think the movie doesn't necessarily get do you get what i'm saying yeah i do um yeah which again you put another hour on this thing and you just let moments but this is my point when it skips in and colin is now bobby is not being played by colin it is very clear that he doesn't just have a great relationship with both of Jonathan's parents, that he has this like deep and profound relationship with Jonathan's father, mm-hmm. right? We only ever see him bonding with Jonathan's mother yeah. on screen. All the high school stuff is about th- this, this teenage boy kind of coming into this middle-aged woman's life and kind of reminding her of all like the promise of youth and being very accepting and loving and kind to her and and just wanting her to get a chance to enjoy life again interesting stuff kind of weirdly erotic i kept being like please don't fuck sissy spacek please don't fuck sissy spacek he doesn't Can we say it right now sissy spacek gives the best performance in this film i think colin might give the best performance in this film. i think but sissy, sissy spacek, spacek is great in this movie yeah great actors but then like you spend all this time with him bonding with the mother and then you jump ahead 10 years and the relationship with the father needs to be on an equal level as the relationship with the mother for Mm -hmm. the rest of the movie to pay off i understand that this character is said to be the sort of person who just loves everyone and everyone loves equally but if you skip all that stuff I am just left unmoored. And I, at some point I can't be like, well, I understand the story you're trying to tell and it works in practice, in theory. So I can ignore that it doesn't work in practice. Let me give you a Connor's writer's workshop. Uh, yes. This is a writer's workshop movie. Yeah. I'll give, and I'll again, give my the novel. 
the novel probably does all this stuff I want, right? When it when it jumps forward and uh, Bobby is walking with Jonathan's father, who uh, I don't think they ever say what kind of disease he has, but he clearly has some sort of like respiratory um, uh, anemic disease that's causing him to to be weak. And they move. The reason they move to Arizona is because it's dry and and warm in Arizona. Part Um, of the reason they kind of gently kick Bobby out of living with them mm-hmm. is because it, 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 it is unsaid, but it, I think it is, is poignant that they know he's going to die and they know Bobby needs to like yeah. be, be already be ready to not have to have more people in this life than just these two people who are not. It's clear, it, like if part of the aspect of Alice's character is that she has this longing for the youth that she didn't realize that she yes. lost until she like first comes into contact with Bobby. It's it. I, I do think it, there's some aspect of reflection in the fact that like, they don't want Bobby to reach an age where all he can see yes. is the amount of time that he spent with older people Two who don't people. necessarily need yeah. him um, because he's too scared to like move on and go out. Into the I world. don't even think it's that he's scared. It's not like I can't leave the nest thing. It's that he's so comfortable. I don't, I don't, I don't see. I think I might disagree with you because I think it, there's a sense of like, I have found people and I'm scared that I won't be able to find people again. If I leave Maybe. out on my own. Um, I, I think you might be projecting a little and filling in the blanks a little too much. Here, here's here's my workshop fix though. The father is clearly sick. So yes. just have a scene where the father is getting treated at the hospital and Bobby is like sitting off to the side with Alice and he has the yes. same conversation that he had with the father except with Alice. Better. Yeah. Uh, another thing this movie doesn't stick the landing of is this idea that, you know, like I said, at the end of the movie, he is basically given the option to go live the very boring heteronormal normative you know suburban life mm-hmm. with the woman he loves and with their daughter and he turns it down in order to stay with his dying friend and it implies basically spends the rest of his days hoping that he will see his daughter again mm-hmm. that seems to me that there could be some poignancy if i felt that he felt guilt about leaving this man he loved to die without him. Yes. And I don't think, again, th- the movie does not want to actually let any of these moments sit and let this stuff stew. There's so much, there's so much that could be done because there's like so- of the reality that the father has Alice to be there for him while he's dying, but Jonathan has nobody else but Bobby to be there yeah. for him while he's dying. Like there's so much Bobby wants like to protect say, Alice from that as like well. Like you say, on paper, when you're looking at the the actual hard plot points of this of this film and the story, it it sounds like you should be watching something that's devastating that's devastatingly yeah. affecting in the and th- this is stuff is. i personally yeah. all find very like devastating as well like this yeah this really dying parents found families the east village aids right like all stuff where i'm just mm-hmm. like oh god this this is written right for me it has it has so uh, here's here's like a strange thing that i couldn't help thinking about the second time i watched it is the the uh narrative similarities that this film has with moonlight yes considering like the focus on this relationship between two childhood friends and how that relationship where the negotiations they have with sexuality and the 
um, like attitudes of the culture around them towards how people express themselves with sexuality and love and affection and friendship, like like stretch into their adult years. Um, uh, Much like how in Moonlight, uh, the friend hits puberty and somehow becomes Cuban. Uh, In this movie, (laughs) uh, Bobby turns 18 and somehow becomes Irish. Yeah, (laughs) it's very strange. Um, It is is wild because like the last thing that happens before the time skip is the younger Bobby speaking. And then that like it fades out and then it fades back in to Colin speaking. So you just heard the actor speaking without any Irish lilt at all. And it like, it didn't bother me for the rest of the movie, but for, uh, the kid is so American, but for just in that, in that one second, I was like, Oh fuck, this is Colin. The kid doesn't have any, like any, like, um, he's very Californian. Yeah, what am I trying to say? He doesn't have any identifiable like quirk, like affect to his vernacular and the way he speaks in any way. And then it jumps to Colin, who sounds like yeah. Colin Farrell. And again, it's like it's not a bad American accent. It like within it's not a bad American accent, like within the awareness of like all Americans sounding different, but it's a bad American accent when it jumps from the way this this kid sounded at the age of 17 to the way he sounds at the age of 24. So you have Moonlight, which is this film where uh, like rarely are the characters actually saying how they feel. And then like at the very sparse moments throughout the film, when they finally due to like whatever desperation they're feeling, or they finally feel comfortable enough to say what they feel. It's just absolutely wrenching when the, when the true dialogue comes out of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a film that's completely, that's completely structured upon visual motifs and visual metaphors and things that can be, things that are ambiguous and how they can be interpreted and, and in the ways that they can make meaning and the ways that they can be uh, digested within one's own experiences and one's own memories and how you don't necessarily have to be black or from Florida or from a poor family or, or queer um, to understand the emotion of how these characters are feeling. And again, that's a film that I think I had rated as the best film of the 2010s in my opinion at the time when I made that list in 2019 it's probably still up there for me today but I haven't thought about it that much and then you compare it to a film like this that's like completely (laughs) that's like you know just completely built on this like opaque dialogue between characters but I don't necessarily think the like opaque dialogue is a bad thing intrinsically because I'm thinking of like you know Ebert made this point in his review of this movie, this is this is such a Roger Ebert podcast, and you know what? Fuck you if you have anything to say about that. <laughs> uh, it'll become a Richard Brody podcast when he starts regularly reviewing these movies too. Um, you know, but, surprisingly, it's it, it, even later on. I haven't finished all of the dossiers yet, yeah. but he there's there's limited Brody from what you would expect. Really? Yeah. I just figured because he he at least will capsule so much stuff. Anyway, um, Ebert made this point that like the the big decision at the end of this movie is that Bobby makes goes unspoken and unexplained, right? He never says that he's making this decision. He never says why he's making this decision. People don't necessarily ask him to defend himself in doing it. He just does it. And the movie trusts you to kind of clock into the sense that he he is choosing Jonathan over Claire because he knows that's where he's needed. And that 
silence, I think, almost that opposite in so many ways of, you know, the ending of Moonlight being so powerful and that that's the moment where it's actually spoken. This movie, I do think, actually gets a lot of power out of leaving things unspoken in this one moment at the end. And I think it is shooting for that through so much of the runtime. And it just feels unearned or half-baked in the way that everything about Moonlight is so precise. You know, Moonlight is such a precise movie. This is such a sloppy movie. I'll explain where I think the hole is poked in that from the way I interpret the film is that, like I said, like my, the, the best thesis I can come up with this is that Bobby loves who needs his love the most if he has to pick between people. And I, when you hit that moment at the end of the film, that's when I'm like, Bobby, I wish you would just get them to talk to each other. Like, just get Jonathan and Claire to talk to each other about what But he knows he can't. He knows he can't because he's been trying to do this for five years. See, that's my thing is I'm willing to buy that because I feel like that's what the movie's trying to tell me. I don't even think he needs Jonathan to talk to Claire about because because okay so here's the deal is though that jonathan is also in a relationship with claire even though that relationship goes unconsummated sexually like jonathan is also in an affectionate loving relationship with claire that goes beyond just like strict of strict expectations of friendship so there there is i know jonathan doesn't want anybody else to know that he is sick other than bobby but there is some kind of there is some kind of reality to relationships where that they're all in this thing together and that I think Bobby probably should have done more to incite Jonathan or at least Claire being aware of what's happening with Jonathan. But at the same time, I think it's Bobby is bad for the throuple. I do too. Specifically Bobby is bad at doing this for all that it seems like an environment that he should thrive in. He decidedly picks one over the other at any given moment, and that alienates the one he isn't picking. And I think his decision to let this thing collapse at the end is him understanding that he's the one who can't make it work. And I don't know. I actually do say for all that I'm ragging this movie, I do find the last half hour. I think the last half hour when they go up when to they Woodstock, go to Woodstock, yeah. I think that the movie really snaps into a groove and hits the themes it wants to hit and the pace feels better because they're living such a quieter life. And I do think those last like five minutes are really quietly devastating. Mm -hmm. And I'm left kind of being like, has the movie hoodwinked me here? Um, But the end credits of this thing, man, come on, think about the end credits. Do you even remember uh, the end credits? No, uh, even He's, though I just saw them. Like That's okay. No, no, no it's okay. It's okay. <laughs> it, it just sticks in my head because I was so not expecting the movie to have this like some a moment this powerful. Um, he is with Jonathan and he is scattering his ashes with Jonathan. And Jonathan He's he's they're scattering, scattering the, the, the dad's ashes. ashes. Sorry. You, and you John, mean do you mean the last moment of the film? Not that I mean credits. the literal I'm I, I'm giving you the context for this. Okay. Um, but they've scattered the ashes and Jonathan says something about like he 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 makes some vague allusion to the fact that he's accepted the fact that he's going to die. He says scatter my ashes here too. He says he says, which when I die, yeah. I think this would be an all right place for you to scatter my ashes. Which too. he has been fully in denial about the fact that he has AIDS throughout this whole point. It's you said he doesn't want other people to know, but I, I'm telling you, Connor, I've seen that he's 
he has not admitted to himself that this he's is been in denial, but Bobby's also been in denial because Bobby keeps telling yes. him he's like, it's a bruise, man. No, it's gonna Bobby, go away. It's just no, a bruise. No, yeah. Bobby is feeding his denial. That Bobby knows. Yeah. No, Bobby, Bobby knows what it is from the second he sees it. Bobby yeah. understands. Bobby is feeding Jonathan's denial, part because that's what he thinks Jonathan needs. And maybe he's right. But Jonathan says something, he, he accepts he's going to die, and then they walk back to the house, and Jonathan says something to the effect of, like, look at this home we've built together, right? Mm-hmm. And Jonathan heads into the house, and Bobby stops, and it's the fucking Paul Schrader ending, right? <laughs> it's the ending to Light Sleeper, and there's another Paul Schrader movie that does this, where you think it's a freeze frame as the credits are rolling over, but it's actually just the actor standing still. So what you are seeing there is Bobby having been like hit with the enormity of what he's, the decision that he's made, that he has chosen to live this life with Jonathan and care for Jonathan and until Jonathan dies at the expense of a life with his daughter. And the movie ends as the credits are rolling with just Bobby standing there looking at the house in stillness before he walks in. And I think there's a lot of enormity to that, of this question of like, did he fuck up? I see. Does, I, does how, how much does he feel that he made the right decision? I don't think the movie has an answer for that. And I truly don't think Colin has an answer for that. And that's why I love this Colin performance. I don't love it. I really like this Colin performance. I, He's an unknowable. I, I also I, I also think this Colin performance is good. I'll get that out of the way right now. Yeah. I there are a couple of moments. The, the first thing I want to point on that scene is that Jonathan says, "When I die, this should be an okay place for yes. you to scatter my ashes too." To which Bobby responds, "If that's what you want," and he's yes. not he's not saying anymore. Like you're not going to die. Like everything's yes. fine. It's clear that Bobby has come to terms with being open about the fact, being yes. open about Jonathan's mortality. Um, but the other thing that Bobby keeps talking about is that his, he keeps saying she's going to come back here one day and this will be hers to which makes me think that she, she being their daughter. Yeah. I think I, I would be greatly mistaken if this movie doesn't end, Jonathan dies, Bobby takes like as ever much time as he needs to come to terms with that. And then he goes and finds Claire and his daughter. Yes. Well, yeah. but that's my point is the movie ends with him not knowing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The, the movie ends with, for once this, this very caring, affectionate man has this moment of hesitation and introspection that, that he's so been denying anyone, even the audience this whole time b- b- because he's so, he seems so simple and he seems so, you know, single-minded in his pursuit just to be affectionate to people. And he, he, but in a weird way, that means he never shows the weaknesses that everyone else is showing to him. And he gives it to us, the audience in private, but he can't even look at us, the audience in private for once. And we can say he'll find her. Will Claire let him? I don't know. Like, that's the question. He, doesn't know he has made a decision and he has to live with it and that the consequence of that decision could be anything i think it's a really good ending i think it's a no really no, no. Good I, I think this is what i'm saying it's like i think when you come into this film ready for for the way it's going to tell its story yeah. to you you could take a lot away from it, um, it also but man the kid i let me just say right now, so the, kid, 
the kid actors are horrible. They're some of the worst child actors. They're some of the worst actors I've ever seen in my entire life. And you do not see Colin Farrell for 30 minutes while you watch And when you, you do. You don't see Dallas Roberts. You don't see what, fucking Robin oh, Wright. You, it's not <laughs> just that you don't see Colin Farrell. It's that you don't see Colin Farrell. And then when Colin Farrell shows up, he is wearing maybe the worst wig anyone has ever wig. rocked in a movie. No, no, no. Samuel Jackson wore the worst wig in any movie in uh, the... Uh, what is it? The negotiator? Not that. Is that what it's called? What's the one? <laughs> you know, you know, I'm talking I've never about the seen one the with Kevin Spacey. He, 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 he wears he wears like the worst wig ever in that one. But it's mostly just because there's like very... this just looks like a normal wig. No, nah, dude, when you're watching the movie, there's like close up shots of his okay. face that are in such clear definition. And you can like see the glue that's holding the wig onto his okay. head. And but that's may- maybe the worst. Wig in, in to, to, to kind <laughs> of underscore colin's whole like bit uh, bobby's whole you know arrested development thing because so much of this movie is the first act of this movie is set in the 70s so young bobby has this very i think of the moment like 70s rock kid look with like long hair denim jackets right it all feels for all the performances bad that character seems okay like he also he, just has nobody taking him to get haircuts yeah because his mother looks, is dead and but but he's he's clearly got like a bit of like a hesher metalhead fashion thing going on but he does but he, i but i also think it's a symptom of like yeah. low maintenance low grooming sure. you know what i mean when they jump to the present though that is, i mean that's a good <laughs> point i i don't know that i buy that actually because alice and ned are so loving to him yeah but i think i think what's interesting about alice and ned is they're loving with they're they're they love bobby and they're accepting of bobby they bring him into their home they they feed him and and furnish him with what he needs to finish high school and and have everything that that a growing person needs in their life um but they never make attempts to replace his parents you know what i mean again something i would love to see the movie explore (laughs) to a greater degree um yeah but but my, but when it cuts to the early '80s, I think the idea is they want to still have Bobby have this like long <laughs> '70s hair to, to to underscore the fact that he's like stuck in the childhood it's in a way. The so problem is it looks like they have dyed a mop black and slapped it on Colin's head, and he, looks- he has. It's he looks Google. like a Muppet. He, he looks, looks like, like a Muppet. A Muppet. I, yeah. I need to stress this, listeners. Google the wig. It's it's worse than you think it is. The the moment when they cut it off and he can be like handsome again uh, is like such a like a weight off my chest. It's a weight off. It's a weight off your chest, and it's also like there's something about Bobby up to that point that is so unassuming. And then they cut, they like, he has regular like rock star Colin Farrell hair. And you're like, oh my God, this is Bobby. Well, he, <laughs> you know and he I mean? looks at all of yeah. a sudden he looks like someone who like belongs in the East Village. He looks you know? like, he looks like the most popular person in the East yeah. Village. Yeah. yeah. He's so good. Which he's I got guess that, is like, kind of what Bobby becomes. He's got that like club kid, like Michael Art, like leopard print shirt on when she gives yeah. him a haircut. And he <laughs> yeah. looks so good. Oh. <laughs> I part of me is like I think <laughs> it's possible maybe they did they cut Robin Wright's hair and then they went oh my god we have <laughs> they, to offset this with something worse 
to Maybe. distract from how bad Robin Wright's hair is. Maybe. <laughs> so they were like, put put Colin in the worst wig he could find. I, um, I do think he's really wonderful in this, especially when you get past how bad the kid actors are. And I don't want to, I don't want to dog yeah. on kid actors, man, for reasons I've gotten into. Um, yeah. But I think if we're talking about this as like the moment where he needs to like upgrade his career, you're going to, don't be mad at me. Don't be mad at me. But to go back to Minority Report and the conversation we had about Minority Report. Yeah. Um, and this sense that, like, I, I floated this thing in Minority Report that, like, he's so small for so much of that movie in a way that helps the movie but probably hurts his own stock. Um, that if this is your, like, this is the big, serious, dramatic Colin Farrell role, Right. Like, this is the first time he's maybe shooting for an Oscar and he's giving you nothing, right? Like, he's got the charisma turned down so much. He has no big moments. He underplays everything. It's what the character needs, right? He is playing this sheltered, kind-hearted young man, but he's, he's never grabbing attention. Yeah, and that's why he's a good actor. I that's this also is why this first, movie doesn't go anywhere. Well, okay, so I've been very hesitant to get into this in the past because yeah. you can hypothesize as much as you want. You never know the realities of what's going on behind the scenes. This is the first movie that we've watched that I felt like I am seeing the issues he's having with drugs on screen. Interesting. Um, I'm interesting. Yeah, I do there again it's a good performance i think when it works it's achieving what you would like the emotional weight of this film to pull off um there there is an aspect to it where he's doing oftentimes when he's on camera he's doing exactly what he did uh last year in the snl appearance with (laughs) brennan gleason where he's kind of just like pursing his lips and moving his eyebrows together and that tilting his head forward and giving like puppy dog eyes to the camera. Um, They're good eyes. I think he's just, he's like, this is why I see the drug issue in this performance is because I think he's acting so within his wheelhouse of like what he knows people want from him that it doesn't necessarily feel to me like he's, he's going above and beyond like what was required like yes. he was going above and beyond the challenge from from the outset. I, I don't necessarily think it's a great performance. I'm just like watching it and I'm like, no, it's a good I, yeah. I, I'm struck by I'm struck by the choices he's making. I'm struck by how small he's playing it. I will also say, you say this is in his wheelhouse. I think this is in his wheelhouse now. That I is don't also necess- true. that's what I'm saying. I watched this and I was like, Oh, this is in actually weirdly in a lot of ways, this is almost the dry run for in Bruges, right? That I think he's, I, I see a lot of Bobby actually in the performance he's going to give in in Bruges, which is a better performance. I don't think this is the performance people thought he was going to give or wanted him to give then. If no. anything, <laughs> I think you tell people that Colin Farrell is in this like early 80s AIDS drama, I think they're going to want him to play the more tortured, you know, bigger Dallas Roberts performance. And yeah. he's, but that's what I'm saying is even if it's not the best performance in the world, he doesn't want to do that. He, he, he wants to zig where everyone else wants him to zag. He always has. You, it's like his worst. 
he's the, he, he, he's almost his great curse in a way. Yeah, I'm just looking up the date of when it released just to check. But I think when you hear that this movie, like I don't remember this. I, I don't. I don't think I knew about this movie before we started this podcast. Um, yeah, that's fine. So I don't remember it when it came out. Yeah, I don't remember when it came out. I don't know. Like it was difficult to find doing research for this episode. Any, uh, like any pre-release coverage of the film. Um, yeah. although there clearly like was some that, and we'll get into that in a minute. Um, but I, I, my expectation is like when you hear that he's going to be in a in a film like this, you expect the type of performance that Heath Ledger gives in Brokeback. Like exactly. that's what you are. Yes. That's what your assumption of what he's. That's the Oscar play. You know what yes. I mean? Yeah. I think, I think it's very bold actually for him to make this movie when he makes this movie. It is. Because I am sorry yeah. to say it is still 2004. And, you know, we've, we've talked about how he seems almost like more so than other actors of the era, so comfortable with his sexuality and so unbothered by the idea that anyone would parse him as gay that like, no shade to the Heath Ledger Brookback performance, which I think is one of like the 10 best performances anyone gave that decade. Way better performance. But that's such a like tortured Sturm and Drang performance that carries the weight of like, I, Heath Ledger, am performing, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Whereas this, especially with like the, how casual Bobby's like maybe bisexuality is that it's not like he's like, he's not having illicit affairs. He'll casually lean over and kiss Jonathan on the lips sometimes, right? There, there's such a freewheeling nature to that, that I actually think that is almost a riskier play for an actor to make in this era, because that I think does scan is more authentically gay at for performers aspect and especially in a movie like this like you said no one really um you didn't really know that this was coming out at the time they really i know this is still a few years before like the os awards festival season starts running they like exclusively ran this in gay film festivals Right. Like that Ooh. was its entire pre-release strategy was they were going for a gay market, which probably means they were abandoning. I'm sorry to say it, guys, abandoning any real Oscar chances before they could. But it like it played the New York Gay and Lesbian Film Festival. It played Provincetown. It played San Francisco. It played Outfest. Like those are the big gay festivals that does not that tells me that this and obviously Michael Mayer is gay and Michael Cunningham is gay. Those are both gay men. This is a movie by gay men. That, that does tell me that they are selling, they were selling this movie more at a gay audience, right? And like, I think a yeah. sophisticated, quote unquote, sophisticated, you know, coastal liberal gay audience, right? Not like a fucking Greg Iraqi audience. Um, uh, and that's almost like the more daring project for an actor to make than to be in something like Brokeback Mountain, which is obviously so much more explicit, but yeah. has that performed quality to it that this one does it and i think it speaks to him as a as a man honestly that that he's going back to the fucking we're all jerking each other off jokes that he made on the hearts War press tour he doesn't care he's comfortable doing this and he's going to make so many movies over the course of his career where he's like quietly bisexual right yeah he's never fully played gay but this level of casual bisexuality comes up a lot in colin farrell movies he well 
there is an aspect about this film that it's strange that this film came out in 2004 because the realities of the sexuality that it's portraying i think would be i think just everything about what's going on in this film would have if you take the same the same level of green lighting and filmmaking from today's standards i think you just like inherently get a film that's more confident about portraying bobby as like neither bisexual nor gay nor, nor straight but asexual like and a like because it's it's can i read this quote are we yeah. talking about the same quote yeah we are yeah yeah I, I i have it here i think this is a very incredibly interesting thing um colin says hold on i'm trying to find it <laughs> But it's like it's like so what I'm trying to say is when you think about 2004 and you think about broke back in 2005 yeah. and you think about Mr. Ripley and what was that 99? Is that 99? Yeah. Yes. Mr. Ripley? But that's yeah, about and, evil gays. I know, I know, I know, but God it's still like it it's still like Damon's doing gay and and yeah. laws doing things that are on the spectrum of sexuality and not necessarily just straight. Um but when you when you think about the time when all these films are coming out like to make one that even goes beyond gay and bisexual is even like more of a ballsy yes. try, like attempt. Like gay marriage isn't going to be legalized for another eleven years after this film comes out. Yeah, um, that's the other thing. You didn't I think, think about is... how far behind like America was at the time mm-hmm. when this film was made, and to think about the things that it's trying to do, it's like it's it just makes you wonder what we're missing out on. Because it does, I think part of like Michael Cunningham, as you were saying, kind of like trying to dilute his own work to make this digestible as a film. It's also the aspect of like having to speak down to casual viewers who just clearly like do not have the prerequisite experience with the spectrum of sexuality or just like an openness to like different ways of people loving each other that, and, and not to say that like, films have to speak down to the common viewer but there is a sense that like there was money spent on this that yeah. they're hoping to make back at the box office it's so it makes Farrell's performance like a lot more challenging yeah and i think i i think i i don't think that's a hot take to say like that what heath ledger was tasked with doing in brokeback mountain was a lot and he gives one of the most impressive performances ever given but i think so i think when you're just talking about it's it's so difficult for us to put into words who Bobby is yeah. and what he's about. I think Farrell's given a much, much more tricky, challenging task to pull off. The 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 the, the broke back mount the broke back performances, I think, actually trickier than people give it credit for, but weirdly not in relation to the same sex attraction of it all. No, it is, is it's what more, I think it's more about it's i think i think what's tricky about that performance is that ledger has to play like a father with regrets of how he handled the lives of his yes, children that like, only late the, into, fucking, the best yeah. scene in that movie is him and kate mara it's at the yeah. end of that movie is fucking nuclear uh, I, you know what's you know what's a fucking incredible movie is brokeback mountain like a movie i actually think everyone even the people who called the best of the year we're underrating in 2005 mm-hmm. uh, um, yeah i do want to say i think this movie and this is kind of what you're getting to about the 2004 of it all um and i think it's partially that it is based on a novel from 1989 um it has such a strange relationship to assimilation 
as like a concept in gay male lives, which I think really does let it stand out because those Bush years build up to the Obergefell decision are so assimilationist as a philosophy. Like that's such the crux of the gay rights movement. Um, Whereas this movie almost posits that like assimilation into like ordinary society can can and should be happening on your own terms and that it's not that they ever feel any outside pressure to conform to a nuclear family it's that their internal desires to be paired up in a monogamous unit and live in an ordinary life with one person crashes up against bobby's desire to live with so many and i actually think that's very politically interesting for a fairly mainstreamy movie at this time like i said this is not a gregor rocky movie right this is not a movie that has that sort of like pipe bomb through the window queer radical energy to it but yeah. it and and maybe it's because it's it's from a different era of gay male lives and gay male politics and like born of the devastation of the aids crisis in 1989 that it it does i think bristle against the more heteronormative even if we're talking about gay men they're still heteronormative politics of 2004 and of like civil union politics, right? You get what I'm saying? I do. I, I, I get what you're saying. And I, and I'm thinking about like the other, the other thematic things that could come into play as like, there's, there, there is a sense that like, uh, so if, if, if you're looking at the end of the film and it, it's, it, it becomes apparent that Claire cannot, cannot, justify prolonging the status quo when she feels that she is the uh, weakest part of the triangle between the three of them and not not that she herself is weak but just that there is a stronger um, attraction between Jonathan and Bobby that is almost getting distracted when attention is being shown onto Claire yeah. which is the issue that Claire is having earlier in the film I think that there is a similar um, well, like Jonathan leaves earlier in the film, just yes. as Claire leaves later in the film, yes. which is, I think, I think why I feel like it's not going to be a long amount of time before Bobby goes and finds Claire because it's what and they maybe, do with yeah. Jonathan early on. But I, there, there, like, what I was thinking about is like, I don't think that Jonathan. Well, no, 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 it's not even think. Jonathan is not concerned that there's a stronger connection between Claire and Bobby than there is between. Bobby and Jonathan. Jonathan, it's 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 this almost like strange like jealousy of like the straight phallus that Jonathan has, mm-hmm. and the fact and his like ineffectuality, his physical ineffectuality with his own relationship with Claire, that Bobby has to intercede and then almost like intercept entirely and build it into a separate relationship apart from the one that Jonathan already had with Claire. But then it's like you you run into this brick wall of the film not actually like working visually with any of this thematic tension have you you know what i mean yeah have you seen rent i have yeah either the movie or the stage show. okay yeah i've seen the movie i've always okay. wanted to see the stage uh play the musical but i've it's just never happened for the, me. the stage play is yeah. better but i kept thinking about rent when i was watching this a because they're both set in roughly the same area and roughly the same neighborhood um and B, because the second act of Rent is kind of famously a bit of a mess mm. uh, because it tries to blow through an entire year 
in about an hour. And so the pace is kind of all over the place. And it Larson died probably before that book was fully finished. Um, so it's got a rough thing. But there's this bit in Rent where you know, Roger and Mimi break up and Roger's like, fuck this. I can't deal. I can't deal with the, you know, the, the lower East side alphabet city scene anymore. I'm fucking leaving. He does in fact go to, uh, I believe Arizona. Um, and he might go to New Mexico, but it's the same thing, but he, he leaves, right. He's like, fuck this. He leaves and he goes to Arizona. And then like one song later in the show, he's like, I've made a mistake. I need to be back with my people. You know, I got to be with them through the thick of it to the bitter fucking end. And he comes back to New York and in the text, it's supposed to be like several months have passed, but because that, that show's so rushed, it's yeah. like five minutes have passed where he's in New York. He literally like leaves and comes back. And Dallas Roberts does the same goddamn thing in this movie, right? Where he's like, fuck it, I'm leaving. And then, Five minutes of screen time later, his dad's died and they're in Arizona with him and they decide well, to give it like a go. Well, it's like this weird thing where this movie is not told through montage and then he leaves and then and it becomes a montage. montage and then yeah. they find him again. Yeah, you know it doesn't I mean? work. <laughs> yeah. Do you like that performance? The Dallas Roberts performance? Yeah, I think it's fine. I think he's doing what's asked of him. I, yeah, I, that's the best way to put it, probably. Um, I do I do think you're right about SpaceX though. Like I do think she's pretty terrific in this. So there's there's a moment after Jonathan's father dies, um when Bobby hears that Alice has dropped a like a porcelain plate in the kitchen and he walks in and she's clearly just bereft with the passing of Jonathan's father. And Jonathan picks up the two halves of the plate and hands it to her and she she accepts them from him and then just smashes the other two halves on the ground and walks out of the room and i was just like sissy fucking spacek giving it giving it more than any other actress could is she ever bad first of all no Uh, no but it's such a like the fucking the sadness in her eyes when it's the sadness in her early when the kid actors are listening to the music and she opens the door to ask what the music is she sees them smoking weed and, yeah. and kid bobby is like you can try it too and the sadness in her eyes when she accepts it um and it's not a sadness of like i think it could be falsely interpreted by some people as a sadness of like this is what my life has come to that i'm doing drugs with my teenage son and his friend no it's it's not that at all it's a sadness of like i used to be like them I used to I used to just enjoy the company of other people and enjoy listening to music and and have these thoughts about where my life was going to head in the future. But now I'm there in the future and I'm not where I thought I would be. And that doesn't necessarily mean I'm unhappy, but it doesn't mean that the happiness that I do have is overwhelming when I feel it. It's just it's so complicated and you can see it in her face. And she's like a beautiful violinists like being able to pull the strings exactly where they need to be pressed and just a great just a great actress she's a great actress she should have won the oscar for in the bedroom i've never seen monsters ball but i don't know if you've seen in the bedroom she's fucking that's insane but i have seen monsters ball and yeah and i always feel bad saying they should take it away from the one black woman to ever won (laughs) but sissy spacek is just so good in that movie it's and so she walks this very delicate tightrope, I think, where she never really falls into the the fucking, I, I can't stand the ice storm. This is weirdly an Ang Lee episode, huh? Um, mm-hmm. I can't stand the ice storm. And Sissy Spacek never really falls into the, the 
ice storm trap where it's like just this pathetic debasement yeah. of the older woman in the 70s trying to act like a kid. But she also like gets at that it is a little pathetic that she's hanging out with these children so much, yeah. right? And like trying to like siphon off them. And there's such a tension there. And then she also like so beautifully, she has this big scene with Robin Wright near the end of the movie where she similarly skirts a de- delicate line of being like, never upset that she spent her life with her now dead husband, but at the same time missing the things she could have done if she had never met him, right? Yeah. And that that she can hold both, that she manages to hold both those completely non-reconcilable ideas in her head and in her performance at the same time. And especially the fact that Robin Wright is like trying to like do something similar in that same scene. And Robin Wright is like kind of bad in this movie, I think. Yeah. Uh, Not an actress I've ever particularly cared for. Um, Let's give some performances I like. I'm higher on Jenny than I think most people I talk to are. Like, I I subtly think that that like the the story of Jenny and Forrest Gump is actually really good and like it's a insane. Well That's story. insane. That's an insane <laughs> thing to say. Uh, Forrest Gump is one of the worst movies ever made, and, and she's like the worst part of it. But is that even her fault? I don't want to no. hold Forrest Gump against her. Well, I don't want to say that Forrest Gump is like the best movie ever made because I don't think it is and i th- i think there's a so ah, congratulations for just giving me a very clean read of you saying forrest gump is the best movie ever made by the oh, way God. <laughs> <laughs> just like every episode now ends with me saying forrest gump is the greatest movie ever made no i mean it's clearly not and there's clearly like uh, so many I, I think like i think the biggest thing about forrest gump is like the generational issues that's like it comes out in what 94 right or is it 95 94 yep. And it uh, 94, the year of my birth, it to me, it feels like a very clean line between one generation and the next and like one way of thinking in America and the next way of thinking in America. And yeah, it maybe just, it, it Forrest Gump does not walk the tightrope to put it you plainly. You could say that <laughs> uh, the worst Robert Zemeckis film and he has made some bad movies. Is it worse than the Polar Express? Yes, it is worse than the Polar Express. Polar Express, I don't even know if I would put the Polar Express in my bottom five Zemeckis. Hold on, I'm pulling up my list. Is I haven't seen... I you know what, third. yes. I have Polar Express as the fifth worst Robert Zemeckis yeah. movie. But do you have Force Gump as the worst yes. on your list? Yes. 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 So what are the other Robert- four? All right, bottom five Robert Zemeckis movies from five to one. Polar Express, Welcome to Marwin, which I do think secretly might be good. Um, <laughs> Pinocchio. Haven't seen it. The Witches and Forrest Gump. I, was, I saw, I, so I was watching Witches when it came out and uh, we got to the point where they turn into the mice and I told my, and, and uh, my girlfriend was like, oh my God, this is the saddest movie ever. And I was like, I was like, you know, like, and she was like, I can't wait till they get turned back into boys. And I was like, You're not going to get turned back into boys. <laughs> we basically had to turn the movie off right away. Um, what are we talking so about? so fucking bad. Uh, Jenny, we're talking about Robin Wright. Oh, yeah. I think, I think, uh, I think she's good in Forrest Gump. And I, yeah, and she's really bad. In she Gump. is, she is very good in the very messy House of Cards. Um, she's 
good on yeah. what I watched of House of Cards. She does kind of get screwed over. That I, I do feel for her. She gets kind um, of screwed over, but also kind of not because like the shit happened, and then she becomes undeniably the main character of the show and also but the highest no paid one, person uh, in television at that but time no one watched that no. last season that's that's what i mean when she yeah. gets screwed over is like but cool she, she could, as someone who watched every season up to that point there is also an issue of the rapid decay of the quality of the show as you okay because i only watched the first season and the first season is good the second season i remember it being good the third season i remember being like do I not know enough about politics to think that this is good? <laughs> and the answer was no. I think the third season just like really loses its footing. Um, and then I think there's six seasons in total. By the time you hit the point where she takes over, which I've seen the first episode of her lone uh, season finale season. It's, it's just, it's like such a, um, it's such a mutilation of like, the reality of American politics by that time, which sounds impossible because <laughs> a little thing called Donald Trump getting elected the fucking president of the United States of America happened in between, which should mean that anything in the realm of politics on screen you know, is believable you know and feasible. Do you know what's um, fucking insane? That Donald Trump was president for four years. That's so weird. <laughs> president of the United States of America. I... Cole, like literally up into the like literally up into the point where he was running for president i only knew him as the guy with weird hair that i would see like on commercial breaks while i was watching american idol that you know was the only thing i knew about donald trump you know what's you know what's <laughs> even weirder what pretty good chance he could be president again yeah <laughs> like what's <laughs> happening right he's He's he, he he's that he was president that he was such a disastrous president that he could probably do it again if he really wanted to while he's being tried for a federal crime non serious country non serious <laughs> country we live in um, and yet yeah so cool think about all that stuff and then just just come to terms with the fact that I told you that what happens in House of Cards is so unbelievable yeah. that yeah. you can't even like. The value of watching the show is complete. It, the show is completely sucked dry of any value that you can have watching it. Um, what else the is only, Robin Wright in? She is in. So the uh, only thing I've ever really liked her in is the Congress, which I don't know if you've seen the Congress. I have. That that's a pretty. Yeah. It's a it's it's an interesting meta aware use of her as well. Well, no, that, that I disagree with. Actually, I think she's think so? good in it. I think the casting is bananas. Um, I think it's clearly just that she was the only person who would do it, but because she's playing her, she's playing herself in the Congress. She's playing a version of herself in the Congress. Yeah. But the thing I always think about with the Congress is the the portrait that movie paints of Robin Wright is that <laughs> someone who was that, so wait, can I try that? Yeah. Robin Wright is in so high demand as an actor that they like literally have to recreate a, uh, they have to materialize like a clone of Robin Wright, a digital clone. Of yes. Robin Wright but but to... specifically this thing that Danny Houston says early in this movie, that she was like the biggest star in the world for like a few years in the eighties and she refused to be that movie star. 
And the public is still 30 years later clamoring for that woman that Robin Wright would never let herself be on screen. Like that's what that movie hinges on. And that is an interesting idea that is just so non-applicable to the actual historical career of Robin Wright. That it just screams to me that she's the person they got. There is an aspect though, dude, that like her stardom begins with the Princess Bride. No one is walking out of the Princess Bride being like, (laughs) I can't wait to see the next Robin Wright vehicle. I love that movie. She's bad in it, and it's a terrible character. That's the big, the big problem with that movie. And it's not just her, it's the script doesn't do what give anything to do, but that's just a big honking void in the center of that movie. I love that movie. No, but what I'm saying is that she goes in like like the roles that she takes on from that point on are so in the opposite direction of where you expect an an actor of that positioning to turn into. It's more the idea that like 30 years later, people are still like, why didn't Robin Wright make an action movie in 1989? Is, Is the hinging. Whereas like, I think if you cast Melanie Griffith in that role, that would make more sense because Melanie Griffith was a bigger star, you know? Yeah, but I think Melanie Sean Griffith Young, also did the movie. But that's what I'm saying. I'm, I, I, I am more concerned with I the sense of that it. movie it's of like yeah. Robin Wright refused to do those movies in the 90s and 2000s and people clamored for that. Right? I don't think Sean Young, I don't think you can use Sean Young because the reality is not that Sean Young had refused to take on these roles. Yeah. It's just the fact that these roles were, she was barred yeah. from taking them. Yes. Um, to, well, but that, that's the person you want to like scan into the role is the AI machine. Yeah. Uh, all I am saying is many other actresses of Robin Wright's generation make more sense with how the Congress talks <laughs> about Robin Wright than Robin Wright actually does. That being said, I do think that's like a heartbreakingly layered performance. And I don't know why she gave it once. And I never, I don't think she's ever done anything on that level ever. It's also, okay. So she's in Blade Runner too. What? No, that's what I was going to say, <laughs> which they do. They Congress, they Congress Sean Young in Blade Runner. They do Congress Sean. The Congress. Yeah. <laughs> Man, people did not take that movie seriously when it came out, and it almost immediately got proved to be like the most prescient movie ever made. But Congress is a movie that doesn't exist. It's good. It's going yeah. to exist. But it, it does not yet exist. <laughs> the problem is it got released by a fake distributor. Um, yeah. Um, a fake, distri- a fake distributor I quite She's not in that movie. What are you she's talking about? She's good in Blade Runner. She's good in Blade Runner. God, poor Sean Young getting... Congress did Blade Runner 2049. My like beloved Blade Runner 2049. The worst thing about that awful movie is the Sean Young of it all. <laughs> they should get shot in the fucking head. That is the worst part of that movie. Is that that movie is yeah. real bad? Uh, that movie is amazing. It's that movie it's, is somehow worse than the first Blade Runner. That's that's just like. I don't understand how we can see it so differently. Also a bad movie. <laughs> I don't understand. I, I don't, I historic. I famously am not in love with the first Blade Runner. Yeah, because it's bad. Um, yeah. Do we have proof positive that Denis Villeneuve is a real person and not like an escaped Muppets Workshop creation that studio execs use <laughs> to skirt DGA guidelines? Oh my god, that would be so funny. I mean, I've never met him in person, uh, so I you can't, can't look, say. Look at the shape of his eyes. 
Wait, so you think you can you think always Denny be Villeneuve... racist against the Kevin Kwan, by the way. You think Denny Villeneuve is a Congress monster that no, Warner Brothers made? I think he's Warner, a puppet. That Warner Brothers made. Yeah. <laughs> Just screw uh, DGA guidelines. I think, his, I think the films, I think the films that he has made are too good to take that um joke seriously. Like if it was a Marvel joke, you know, if it was the uh, Russo I Brothers. I think Denny Villeneuve wishes he could hit the like baseline competency level of the Marvel movies, which oh is God, very man. low, which is a very low baseline. <laughs> but you hate all those movies that much. That's crazy. They're man. real stinky. You hate prisoners that much. Prisoners is like the worst of them. And, no Blade Runner is the worst of them. And Sicario. And oh, so I like Sicario, but that's my point is that like Taylor Sheridan directed Sicario. You can't convince me. No, that. dude, that is not true at all. If you watch the other <laughs> shit Taylor Sheridan has done, I mean, and you think someone Taylor Sheridan directed, directed Sicario. Sicario yeah, fucking Denny Villeneuve no, <laughs> directed no. Sicario. No, Deacons and, directed Sicario. Deacons Ghost directed Sicario. I, I, okay. Krasinski directed Sicario. So, but Deacons didn't di- didn't ghost direct Blade Runner twenty forty nine. No, a fucking like AI trained on Ridley Scott interviews directed Blade Runner twenty forty nine. A replicant, a replicant yeah. directed Blade Runner twenty forty nine. Um, we are off base here. She is in Wonder Woman. Uh, allegedly, one, allegedly, she's in Wonder Woman. Yeah, she's in for two seconds. <laughs> she's in all the DC. She's in the girl with the dragon tattoo for like five minutes, and Man. she's in Moneyball for like five minutes. She's, she's really in. bad in Moneyball. I'm sorry. We, we, t- when we were talking about villains in the MCU, uh, I said that thing about how like the MCU really likes to like stack up the supporting cast with like real big names who are punching above their weights. And, like, I don't necessarily think the MCU, like, pulls that off, per se. But the DC movies definitely tried to do the same thing. And it's so much worse when the DC movies do it. Viola Davis in Suicide Squad, Robin Wright in Wonder Woman, J.K. Simmons in Justice League, Lawrence Fishburne in Man of Steel. Like, they're really, like, hiring real deal A-listers and having them be in the movie for, like, two seconds. The Lawrence Fishburne one breaks my heart. The performance Viola Davis gives in the first Suicide Squad movie is like the funniest thing any any performance anyone's ever given. She is no one has ever been more bored on screen. I'm gonna tell you right now that movie I think is going to be the hardest hurdle for me to jump if when we inevitably have the discussion of Viola Davis versus somebody else for a season yeah. of Above the Title. Yeah. Thinking about having to rewatch Suicide Squad is the one that's gonna make me be like, See, that's, I don't know, man. I'm actually that's one of the big attraction points for you me doing, talking about viola listeners we, we live in a we live in a post-air america uh and coming out of air my only takeaway was connor we should do a viola davis podcast <laughs> <laughs> hey uh, chris tucker one what if we did christmas three movies we did long. a christmas scene of podcast. you don't want to watch the giant mechanical man trust me oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay we are we are like off track. Speaking of Chris Messina, <laughs> where Sorry, are you? Going I forgot. With this? I forgot. Not everyone else has watched Twenty Eight uh, Hotel Rooms, uh, his best movie. Um, but he hangs Dong in Twenty Eight Hotel Rooms. And speaking of Chris <laughs> Messina, the other what a segue! Oh my god! <laughs> yeah, that would have made more sense if people had seen that movie. Um, the most actual notable thing about a home at the end of the world, which I think has been forgotten to history, 
but was a big deal at the time. Colin Farrell shot a full frontal nude scene for this movie, which was then cut out of the film. Which the press was apparently fully aware of like yes. months before the film was released. It's, it's such an interesting thing because I'm seeing all these interviews where they're like, we don't want to talk about it. We're sick of talking about it. Why do you keep asking us about it? And it's clear that Warner Brothers has like told every reporter, ask about the fucking penis. <laughs> ask about the penis. Because it's, it's such an easy attraction to this movie. Uh, this movie, by the way, the second ever Warner Independent movie. The briefly lived Warner Brothers uh, specialty label that put out a bunch of really good movies. Uh, this is their second after uh, Before Sunset, the best movie of 2004. Um, it's very strange when the movie begins because it's the former Warner Independent logo yeah. shows up on the screen, which is essentially what they have adopted to be the current yes. Warner Brothers logo. Well, you know what? It's a yeah. great logo. It I is. always liked the Warner Independent logo, and when they redid the WB logo to be more like it, I was. It made me I gave feel like, like two I was... thumbs up. It made me feel like I accidentally had gotten a hold of a different film that had came out yeah. like a year ago because I was like, this is the new logo. Like, what, what's going on? And then, nope, the one from yeah. 2004 starts rolling. But they, uh, Warner Independent just had a really good run of it. And it's a bum that Warner pulled the plug like after three years. Because uh, like March of the Penguins was such a good hit. A huge hit for them. Um, good night, good luck is the best picture nomination. They they're bold enough to release Scanner Darkly and The Silence of Sleep within like a month of each other. Good night uh, and good luck is genuinely a very very good film. And good night, good Clooney, luck is a fake movie that doesn't nah, exist. George Clooney did did a genuinely good job directing that film. George and Clooney it's just very has weird. never done a good job directing a movie. A Confessions of a Dangerous Mind is good too. Yeah. Yeah, sure, fine. Ghost fine. directed by Charlie Kaufman. Ghost, that's, that's what I'm. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. Um, but yeah, they shot. They shot a nude scene. They cut the nude scene. I am of two minds of this. I don't know where you're falling on this. I get their logic, which is what they said, which was that Colin Farrell was in fact so famous at the moment that like it would yeah. distract from the rest of the movie. Because people would just be talking about his penis. That's the logic that they said. But at the time when the film was coming out, there was a rumor that, of course, of course, the rumor was that Colin Farrell's, the size of his exactly was so distracting that they could not put it well, on screen. Colin actually addressed that and said, like, I just don't want people fucking talking about that. I get that. I also would like to see it. I have, of course, seen Colin Farrell's penis. But, like, I just wish it was in the movie because, like, I always want to see more penises in movies. <laughs> One of my favorite things about Jane Campion as a filmmaker is the amount of... puts penises in movies? But casual penises in her movies. You know what I'm saying? It's not like she shows penises in sex scenes. It's that men have full frontal nude scenes just like casually, right? Because you know what? Sometimes people are naked and sometimes people have conversations when they're naked, right? That's like the mm. most interesting thing about her. And sometimes the sex scenes are like the conversation scenes are post-coital or pre-coital. Sometimes they're just more casual than that, right? Like Cumberbatch stripping to take a bath in um, Power of the Dog. It's 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 such an, a, a beautiful verisimilitude of her movies. I always want to see more of it. And you tell me... I, I can't imagine the penis shot was in a sex scene in this movie because there's a there's a couple other like semi-nude Colin Barrel scenes and semi-nude Dallas Roberts scenes in this movie, but they aren't sex scenes. They're like these guys are so casual on each other that they they'll they'll often not wear clothes around each other. 
I I have a guess at where this I yeah. I don't think it was a scene. I think it was a shot. Yeah. I think so. The first time that Bobby sleeps with Claire, they are sharing the bed together, and Jonathan comes yes. home really excited. Jonathan opens the door and he sees them snuggling together. Yes. And then Jonathan kind of like wanders off to his room sad. Uh, the next the next transition is Bob is Bobby fully nude walking into Jonathan's room yes. to ask if he's okay. My guess is that that sequence begins. It's in the film itself. It's shot from behind Bobby as he's walking into Jonathan's room. My guess is that there was a shot from Jonathan's perspective in the room looking at Bobby. Yeah, that, that's that's what I was kind of thinking. Yeah. Dude, that seems better if you see his penis. I'm sorry, not to be I, crass. I don't. I think, think it is. I don't think that I. I think the assumption that other people made was that the that his penis is shown during a sex scene in the film. I actually think it would be very effective to have that shot in that sequence that I just mentioned. Again, I have have no idea if that's where the actual shot comes from, or if it was just a scene, an entire scene that was cut from the film. But if that, if, if it was done in a situation like that, where I think the, the visual presence of Bobby's sexuality is kind of like overwhelming for Jonathan to, to handle uh, I think it would be effective. Um, there's there's a tension in that scene already between the sort of intimacy of Bobby's willingness to be casually naked around someone he's this close to yeah. versus Jonathan's uh, like kind of longing for that body, right? In an erotic sense, which is compounded by the fact that they've already had sex, even though it's been years since they've had sex they have already had sex with each other or a form of sex with each other and i think everything that movie's juggling is more profound if you kind of see the agent of all these tensions which is the penis in that scene and that's what i'm saying when i say i want more casual nudity i think we're in agreement there yeah uh, man i i feel like last i week don't think we that nudity about- is ever casual i just maybe like in sequences that sure exist outside of sexual encounters nudity yeah. Eh. yeah then we're i think yeah yeah it's a i think the reality of nudity is that it is never casual interesting i think the reality of nudity is that it is often very casual i th- well no no i think it nudity in cinema is maybe what i'm trying to say that oh, like even more so in any situation where you see nudity on screen you have to reckon with the fact that you're encountering nudity on screen yeah but but does it have to be that way? Because I don't think that's the case in Campion films, right? Like I think no, I think it still is the case with Campion films. Maybe, maybe. I'm almost I'm almost like it would scare me if it wasn't that way. Interesting. <laughs> like, I want. I'd be like, I do I more. still have a heartbeat? You I always I mean? want more. I always want more. My yeah, biggest... but does if you want more, then I think that means that it's not very casual. Maybe and maybe that's you know a... what I mean. But I want it to, I want more so it feels more casual, I guess is what I'm saying. You want more so that like yeah. the commonplace, the commonplace reality of nudity is yes. true. You know yes. what I mean? Yeah. I feel like last week uh, I got to the end of our discussion of intermission and I felt like I had been dogging on the movie the whole time. And I feel like I've gotten to this one and I feel like I'm gassing up the movie the whole time when I feel like intermission is like a quiet masterpiece. And this is kind of a disaster. It's just weird that that's how it goes. Yeah. 
Um, well, okay. So I've been wanting to talk about this since the beginning and you completely like skipped it. Oh, I did? Um, Sorry. Is that there are, yes, there are teenage actors who play Jonathan and Bobby for about 20 minutes in the beginning of the film. 10 minutes before that is about Bobby's life as a nine-year-old. Oh, yeah. the, the film begins with, nine, this is literally how the film begins, with nine-year-old Bobby in his bed hearing sounds of sex from down the hall. He casually opens the door to his brother's room to see him having who i think is a teenager at the time who yeah. is seen having sex with a completely naked girl yes. i uncomfortably have to say um who he flashes a peace sign to bobby who he sees standing in the doorway to which the girl realizes that they're being watched by a fucking nine-year-old against i think um uh appropriately uh objects to what's going on and and puts her clothes on and leaves out of uh bobby's brother's window to which nine-year-old bobby and his brother have a discussion uh where his brother asks him if he's freaked out and bobby says a little and his brother says it's just love man that's all it is and i you know it's kind of like the defining aspect of how jonathan approaches life from there on out but this sequence that takes place in 1967 ends with Jonathan's brother running through a plate glass sliding door into (laughs) his parents' house during a party, which causes a shard of glass to get stuck into his neck, which he rips out and bleeds out to death in the middle of the like family room during the party. Yes. To which I texted you, this is the dumbest movie I've ever (laughs) seen. (laughs) If you want to know why I I just could not handle it if you want to know why i did not mention any of this 1967 prologue stuff in my plot synopsis uh it's because i think it's dumb as shit and sucks (laughs) ass and is like for all that i don't think this movie is good i think this stuff is comically bad and i don't think it is any bearing on the rest of the movie and i think the dude who's playing his older brother is doing a fucking like atrocious pickford and daisy confused (laughs) impression the entire time you could lose all of it and other than like yeah no let me restate the brother dies by he thinks he's just running into the house he does not realize that the door is closed and a normal normal way that people die (laughs) uh listeners go like test the the strength of the nearest sliding door and see if you can maybe do that with like a two foot head start um it's the fucking ice stormiest part of this movie and like the ice storm is bad and this whole scene is bad it's just like it's corny are are you supposed to be what are you supposed to feel while you're watching this what's it supposed to make you feel for the rest of the movie well i think i I, there is something interesting about the fact that the way i interpret it the first time bobby bobby loses his virginity to claire which is, I think, the only sex scene that's shown, actual, like, intercourse, uh, portrayal of intercourse that's shown in the film. And uh, Bobby cries during the sex scene. And I think part of the reason why Bobby cries is because he's remembering his brother. Because Maybe. that's the only time he's ever seen sex before. Is Maybe. the moment early. It's the, literally the first scene in the film. Um, so I interpret that scene as as bobby crying because he's remembering his brother and he's also remembering his brother saying that this is an expression of love and it's just this weird psychosexual thing where he's remembering the love he felt for his brother at the same time that he's having this this attraction to a woman that he's with um but 
the problem is like human beings are fascinated by the dumbest fucking ways that people can die and we think it's hilarious like there's just something Mm. elemental about us thinking it's funny that people can die in such a dumb way i think it's like the absurdity the futility of life it's just like our way to cope with it that it could end at any second and it could end for something like so embarrassing and so stupid and it's like you just can't help but laugh at it and (laughs) like there's something about the way that his brother dies that i i just like i i can't synthesize within like a larger thesis of how the film as a whole maneuvers and and is structured and I, I just don't know what to make i mean there's also a weird moment where the brother gives bobby acid again this is a nine-year-old kid who like feels like he's flying over a cemetery <laughs> that i don't it's know how so... to make sense of. i i really don't know how to make sense of that. again it probably yeah. works better in the book did you if, if you seen bo's afraid yet i haven't yeah i kind of want to spoil bo's afraid for you go for it because I don't know when I'm going to be. Just because, and I, I, I'm good. Do you I'm think gonna, it's gonna anger me, like to have it spoiled, or I don't know, man. This isn't the bigger spoilers. It's just there, there's a scene in this movie that reminded me so much of a scene in Bo is Afraid. Uh, I mean, okay, don't could, watch it. It's a bad movie. It I, stinks. I. I was a very thinking, strange thing, viewers out there. I've I've had a very weird week. <laughs> where I've seen a lot of cinematographer just for some reason. Out. I'm bleeping this out. <laughs> and he's been nonstop telling me to go watch Bo's Afraid. In okay. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know when I'm supposed to fucking do that, man, because I'm driving you around all day long. So I don't know when I'm supposed to go to the IMAX theater. There's it. just a, there, there, there's a sex scene in Bo's Afraid that is very similar to the first Colin sex scene oh. with Robin Wright. In well, this. that... There, I can't stop thinking about. I watched Boye last week because we were yeah. talking about John Crowley, and there's a scene in Boye where, um, it's basically the same thing plays out. It's shot differently. It hits a hundred times harder. Like it, it feels like when you see um, Andrew Garfield crying, it, it feels like you're getting punched in the stomach by fucking Mike Tyson or somebody like that. <laughs> which is not how it feels when you when you're watching Colin Farrell cry in the scene. Here's what I'll say. Uh, do you know what the title Bo is Afraid refers to in that movie? <laughs> I, I swear to God. He's afraid to That's like the long that's like the the overhanging. Yeah, I'm not I'm not joking. That's that's that is a major plot point in that movie. Oh man. He is because <laughs> he's never once <laughs> he's got like those fucking this sounds like this sounds like a like a college humor sketch. It's got yeah, it does. It really yeah. does. God, that movie's so bad. Oh man, but it's a similar thing where he does finally have a sexy, and it's like the older, more experienced woman like do you, he cries. <laughs> do you have a theory as to why Colin cries uh, during that scene? I think just because it's he doesn't know how to process the intimacy of it. You know, it's probably true because he's lived because he also says like colin says this is that quote i was trying to pull up earlier and now i've lost it again but you were talking about like the maybe asexuality of bobby and colin gave a quote where it's like it's it's not even so much that he's i'm I'm gonna paraphrase what colin said but colin says the fact that he's like he's not even so much bisexual as that he is just an asexual person who loves to love people 
mm-hmm. and he doesn't even have enough of an understanding of what sexuality is to ever define himself as any type of sexual like mm-hmm. like he to 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 conceptualize yourself as bisexual requires a level of cognition that he doesn't even like function at not that he's like mentally disabled but that he is just so innocent in a way i don't I, yeah i've been thinking about this a lot read. it's and a very I, like, interesting read bobby's not a simpleton but no, he's, he's i simple. think he's i think he is traumatized to the point of deciding that he's he's just like not gonna think too much about these negotiations that we make he's in life he's not simple in the coded way that like a movie like forrest gump uses the word <laughs> simple to yeah. skirt around ever having to actually depict a real disability that that's not what colin farrell's playing colin farrell's playing a person who is fully cognizant right who is just simple who doesn't concern himself with things who mm. thinks in a very base emotional fashion and i think the reason he cries when he's having sex is because it's just such a such a strange experience to him that i i truly do believe that a year earlier this is a character who just I never even considered he would have sex because that's just not the life he was living the probably like living, a week earlier yeah he was he, he was just living a yeah. life where he was content to be with these two parental figures right he's a baker like, <laughs> Any sort of erotic sense was going for him. And the fact that he lives an erotic life in the movie seems only because it is what the people he loves wants out of him. He is completely unconcerned by the fact that he had these sexual experiences with Jonathan. He was a kid because he was like, well, that's just a thing I did with Jonathan. And that's how he approaches having sex with Robin Wright for most of the movie. I just think the first time it happens, it's just it's a lot. Right. Well, that, that's my read. Yeah. That was my read on it. I don't see the trauma thing that you're. I understand why you're outlining that, but that did not track for me, and that's part of the reason why I'm like, we can just fucking ignore the opening of this movie. No, I think I think his. I think what I'm trying to say is that the losses that he suffered in his life at such an young yeah. age, conjoined with the fact that his first interaction with sex is his brother just telling him that this is how people love each other produces the end result of the person that we see in the film, who is somebody who is content in life, maybe not to the fullest extent, but doesn't want to go backwards and have to confront the trauma that he experienced. Um, And is also just taking like what he learned from his brother to as at like at the, just at, at, complete face value like a fully realized face value where like because sometimes his interactions with jonathan especially later in the film when it's colin and dallas roberts and bobby is in new york and he's not in a romantic relationship with jonathan jonathan but he'll just kiss him yeah like on the mouth and it's 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 really like these are moments of bobby just being like yes i'll kiss jonathan because i love jonathan jonathan yeah. is my friend i love him but i want him to be happy they're like pecks they're like kisses yeah yeah it's very not, it's not a kiss on the cheek it is like no, it's a romantic a, kiss on it's the a mouth. romantic it, kiss it makes me think of um paul Shear on this how did this get made he brings up this story like every once in a while on the show which is kind of like a fan favorite by this like his story is a fan favorite by this point because it's so strange but i think it's something that a lot of people can relate to if not this specific like weird thing where he talks about how like when he was probably six or seven years old 
before he knew anything about sexuality or, or relationships of of like the realities of romantic relationships that he had watched i don't know what movie it was i cannot remember but some sort of adult drama with his parents and there's like a scene in the film where a couple french kisses and then when his mom was tucking him to bed at night and she <laughs> leaned in to kiss him he like gave her like a tongue like a tongue french kiss <laughs> to say goodnight to his mom and it was making oh me God. think of that as like that bobby has decided not to concern himself with the sticky social interactions and kind of the the unsaid rule book of the way that people uh maneuver within social spaces um because he just wants to be happy yeah. and part of that means that he has given up on trying to understand what adult romantic relationships look like in the traditional sense which means that he just translates love through sexual affection or other kinds of physical intimacy that he shares with people but and in a, in a weird way then through doing that matures into someone who behaves more in a fashion we expect an adult to behave just yeah. over the course of being himself but being more open to outside experiences that like the 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 man we see at the end in the restaurant and the very much more sheltered man we see a few years earlier coming to the east village they're they're such different people but i think colin sells the the growth that happens there even if he never seems to consciously be like and now i'm going to do a growth you know yeah yeah well because in turn it's like it's this weird thing where in terms of each person he's with and his own sexuality and his own uh proclivity towards physical intimacy he like code switches and he has yeah. to adapt he has to adapt to that individual person yeah. like he has a certain way of interacting with alice which who he's clearly not in a romantic relationship with but he does have he does have a way of interacting with alice that's physical one and that's intimate in another sense that he doesn't replicate with claire or jonathan and he has a way of interacting with jonathan that he doesn't replicate with claire and Claire is the closest that he has to like the traditional male female um, romantic sexual relationship that you expect. I wish, I wish the kid who played him as a teenager was better because I do think there's an interesting tension this movie's trying to get to vis a vis how much more aggressive he is in terms yeah. of setting these terms as a child versus how much more passive he is as an adult. And a lot of that shift happens off, off screen, obviously. And I wish we saw that shift more. But I also think that like, Whatever whatever contrast needs to be there kind of doesn't land just because this kid is just really dreadful. The, the teenage version, good, man. the teenage version of Bobby seems so wise beyond beyond yeah. his years, and the adult version of Bobby, which again is only seven years later, is only seven years in between, seems so stunted behind yeah. where he. But I be think I think the movie is doing that intentionally. I just don't think it lands because. Of the combination of the time skip and this bad performance. Yeah. I wish this movie was better. Right. Yeah. There, there's so much. I want to say this. I want to say this too, because this is something I've been thinking about in preparation to kind of like just saying that these kids are horrible actors. It's it's not necessarily that the kids are horrible actors. I've said this about Colin before concerning other films. I think there is no situation where you have children on screen where this isn't true is that the director has to get the good performance yes. out of them. Like this is yes. a child. They have to learn. They have to learn how to act. Like they are not 
adults in the professional world yet it's up to the director to be a teacher to like coach it out of them to get the good performance the one that fits the film you know what i'm saying if you just boil it down to the story it's not a terrible film um no i just don't think i think most of it is poorly executed i i agree with you i think it's the script and i think it's the i I, and again like i feel like i was pushing back to you earlier but i want to make this clear i do not think this is a well-directed movie this movie looks like dog shit i think the tones are all over the place well again the sentimentality is just like wildly unfit for cinema like the fact that they call the cafe that they open the home cafe and it's like we fucking get it it's called the home at the end of the world this is this kid whose entire family has died like he's just looking for a home like we get it dude you don't have to call it the home cafe for us to like get the idea of what's going on here like that like that itself this is what i'm talking about that moment itself of like that aspect of them calling it the home cafe cheapens the end of the film when he's looking at the house as the credits start rolling. You know what I mean? It's like that yeah. over that getting bashed over the head with what the film is trying to make you feel where the beauty of cinema is that it just makes you feel regardless <laughs> is that you have to know when to push the buttons hard and when to just let things roll the way they're rolling because the soviets were obsessed with it's maybe the most <laughs> maybe the most manipulative manipulative art form that's ever been <sighs> devised and like i think you just have to I, understand that when you're making a movie i think we should maybe call it because i gotta go see are you there god it's me margaret okay. uh, unless you had anything else you wanted to address because i don't think we have any games this week no i have one you do have one yeah i have one you lied to me you son of a bitch IndieWire has a list of the best nude scenes in in films Oh God! Uh, I feel like I read this one when it came out. There's 23 have... of them. I mean, just 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 go for the five. Oh my God! I have like no. Can you start giving me hints? Because my brain is fried. Um, yes, but you gotta I, I, give I'm me... panicking because I've read this list. That's what I'm stressing out, and that means well, I'm pulling a complete blank for anything. Well, like in the in the oh, they're actually they're unnumbered. They're unnumbered. Yeah, it's just yeah. a chronological list, right? yeah let's go I'll, I'll help you go backwards okay the most recent one is from 2021 it's a movie that i historically love D- dune no i know there's some dune. why do you dune? think i love dune it's not even I, it's on, the, I gave it a I three like, and a half on Letterboxd. i like ragging on the um on denny villeneuve on denny villeneuve i would just say you love dune it's like it's like my least favorite denny villeneuve is film. it the scene in worst person in the world where they put renata reinsva in the in the fat suit no, but that probably should be it. I actually um, don't like that scene very much. This scene is like pure comedy. In 2021? Yeah, 2021 movie with like a super low budget, but it's a filmmaker who like exclusively makes films with that budget. 2021 like does not exist in my brain is the problem. Like that's the lost year in a way. Okay, you know the, person, a- the person who is nude in the film gave like, it's it's kind of stunt casting for them to be in the movie. They were like a big MTV personality. Oh, of course. Yeah, you do love this movie. It's Red Rocket. Yeah. Yeah, because he is famous as a big penis. I mean, it's more stunt casting because that he's an actual porn star. Yeah. Um, (laughs) That he that he did that he did some porn before he got into MTV. We're talking about Simon Rex. Yeah, we're talking about Simon Rex. That movie sucks. The star, Um, the lead actor of Scary Movie Three. Yeah, that movie's dreadful. You know what's a really good nude scene, by the way. That just popped in my head because you were like, oh, this director makes movies on this budget. Um, Joe uh, Swanberg. Oh, 
the, the most recent Joe Swanberg movie, which is Build the Wall, which is from 2022. Um, there's a scene in that movie where Kent Osborne is about to have sex with Jane Addams and he gets up to go to the bathroom to like grab a condom and he's like standing there and he's like fully erect and then he notices something in the bathroom that he wants to talk to her about and as he's talking to her you can kind of like it's not like a, it's not it's not a one or it like cuts back and forth but over the course of the scene you can kind of see his penis get more and more flaccid <laughs> as as he moves out of sex mode into like landlord mode it's so funny <laughs> That's crazy. The Red Rocket that, one is fine. It's just like we've yeah. all seen Simon Rock's penis. Like, I, I don't <laughs> understand. I mean, as with many things with that movie, do you think this is shocking me, Sean? Because it's not. I can't. I think that movie's dreadful. I'm sorry. I, I know you movie. love it. I know you I love it. A lot of people did. Um, the next one is from 2015. It's like this entire movie is a, a nude scene. Is it Gaspar Noe's Love? Yeah. So, yeah. You know what? You want to hear something? True story? What? Saw that motherfucker in three dimensions, baby. Oh man, you you got you got cummed on. I did. That movie's yeah. good. That movie's really good. I don't know if you've ever seen it. I think it is. Uh, I think it's fine because we both know someone who worked on. That I don't. Movie. I, I honestly, I don't. I don't really think it's it's that good. I think it's, it's fine. One of my favorites of his. I think the relationship stuff. I'm like, th- dude, like this is not. I, see, I I like I like all the relationship stuff, and I really really love. Uh, love that movie. They must have updated this list because I'm pretty sure this list was published before Red Rocket came out. They probably added that in an update. Next one is from 2011. Uh, it's Shane. Yeah. It's actually a bad nude scene. I'm sorry. It's not good. It's just, see, that's my thing about penises in movies. Is this is the too one with uh, Carrie stunts. Mulligan? When he's got like she, a oh, her nude scene is good. Is that what they're saying? No, I think it, no, I think it's the one where he's, he has the towel like around yeah, his wrist. Yeah. That scene is bad because, and it's the problem with too many male nude scenes in movies. It's just there as like a stunt, right? Yeah. Like there should, if that nude scene was going to work, there should be more Fastbender penis in that movie. And I love that movie. That's actually maybe my favorite McQueen movie. There should be more Fastbender penis in that movie, given what that movie's about. Now, Carrie Mulligan has like bookending nude scenes in that movie that I actually think are both really, really effective because the first one is like he accidentally walks in her in the shower and there's so much like weird erotic like discomfort between the fact that he's seeing her naked and that she's being seen naked and that they play brother and sister they play brother and sister and there's so much like revulsion in that nude scene that's really good and then spoilers for shame at the end of the movie she kills herself and she's naked and she's in the bathroom again and it's almost like a repeat of the earlier shot like i think that is a good use of nudity in a movie the fastbender penis stuff is kind of a stunt. I'm sorry. In a movie with that much sex, you should see his penis more often. I think that the the nudity in the sex scenes in Worst Person in the World is like maybe some of the most effective. Incredible. When you see Anders' yeah. penis after they have sex, it's that they like have that one like half-clothed sex scene, which you it's, never really see in a movie, I feel like. I think I think it's the fact that like the sex like some of the sex scenes are shot at like very stylized close-up angles of their bodies like and it's it it was something i've never thought about sex before at least like heteronormative sex is that what what it really is made up of is like 
bodies coming into contact for like a split second and then repelling from each other yeah. and then coming into contact yeah. again for a split section and then repelling from each other which is like the entire idea of that movie is like people coming into contact Man, at like so fucking at good. like the highest intensity of of emotional intimacy that you can have and then ultimately repelling from each other yeah you know what i mean and it's like it's it translated sex through like a visual framework that like i had never thought of it before um yeah and it's just a simple like placement of the camera but i guess it's the fact that it's like it, it was like unscared it was unfazed by the fact that it was placing the camera in that position to that say movie, something meaningful i think that movie is also really smart in that the nudity is often very boring. The sex is often very boring. The stuff that's really erotic in that movie is completely divorced from the sex or the nudity. Like the, 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 cause there's that whole set piece. And especially because it's at the top of the movie, there's that whole sex set piece early on oh, where they have she, to like, keep flirting. The party. Yeah. She stumbles in the party and they okay. like, they decide to do this thing where they basically have to keep like flirting and trying to like get each other off without ever doing anything that's traditionally sexual. And it's so hot. And then the rest of the movie, all the sex is like almost completely uneroticized. It's very casual. Right. And the nudity is even I when they're, that, I think even what you're when saying right there. trying to seduce each other in that movie, it doesn't feel erotic. Because the erotica is something different. I think what you're saying right there is what I don't like about love. Okay. Um, because love to me is like, it's the visuality of sex and nudity and discharge and like all these other aspects, all these other aspects of uh, like bodily function that um, is not usually depicted on screen yet. It's, and what I'm about to say, like, might sound counterintuitive because, like, Noe does does employ, like, guitar riffs to the soundtrack. But to me, it's, like, it's not necessarily clinical, but it's so far removed from... It's so, it's so far removed from, like, tense emotional tissue that people are sharing. Yeah. That... It just doesn't, it like falls flat. It doesn't mean anything to me. And and when I'm watching Love, I'm like, I might as well, if if you were going to make the movie this way, like I, I, I would prefer just to like see really well-made pornography that at least provokes me in a physical way that, yeah. that Love, like I think pointedly, like isn't attempting to do. But I think by that point, it's like, I think we're scared. Like I do, I, I also think that like, viewers and the way we talk about films and the way we talk about films that have sex scenes and the way we talk about films that have nudity is like we are scared as viewers of being turned on maybe maybe like yes. because of the fact that like you're in a theater and and it's like a communal experience but like i don't know sometimes i'm like it's not a bad thing for a movie to turn you on no it's definitely you know? not yeah and we're I, so I scared mean, I mean, that, we're like that, so scared that it's gonna happen but it's that, not necessarily a bad thing that's my point about worst person is that like yeah. that movie is sexy when it wants to be and not sexy when it wants to be right. Like it, it under it's, it's doing the whole thing. It's just putting those, what's the erotic stuff. What's the stuff that really gets you off in that movie is not what you'd expect it to be in that movie. And that's, what's smart about that. One of many things that are smart about that movie. And I guess what I'm saying about love yeah. then is that like, to me, it's neither emotional nor oh. erotic. See, I think the, the emptiness of that movie is, emotional in its own way 
Because I think that movie is a more interesting version of End of the Void. That's my take. I just so <laughs> disaffected. That's fine. I know I I'm think, kind of alone yeah. in thinking that's one of his better movies. I'm fully aware. I do really like it. Um, if we're gonna just like say our favorites real quick, uh, I'm I feel comfortable saying that my favorite in LA is Climax. I would agree. Yeah. I also we saw Lux Eterna together. Uh, oh in the yeah, worst theater in New York City. Uh, that movie that. fucking rules. I adore Lux Eterna. Do you remember what my take on Lux Eterna was? I don't. I was in such a bad headspace that day, dude. That was, I was a really bad day. Oh yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I was glad I got to hang out with you and see that movie yeah. at the end of the day. But I, I, I vividly remember that day because that was a shitty day until we like met up in Chinatown. I remember we were like walking along the riverfront, just like expelling our woes to each other out into the the east river but um i the the first the first half of luxa eterna i I, like could not place my finger on like how i felt about the film i just i couldn't like it was like i couldn't comprehend the film and then when it got to the point where it feels like you should cease comprehending it that was when it like clicked (laughs) in my head and i was just like in for it and i was like man this is it like this is the ride i've been waiting for fucking whipped yeah i need to get that blu-ray uh i want to i want to see it on the on the i'm the lincoln center imax oh my god (laughs) i know it'll never happen you would you would have a seizure would you die i would is 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 lux a turner the closest we've gotten to the the film from infinite jess well i know because it's so in the tradition of flicker films you know that's the thing that's interesting and obviously there's like a flicker film energy to a lot of gaspar's work but that one's so purely you know i don't know if you know this but like the blu-ray has like a bunch of restored versions of like experimental films that he was inspired by on the second disc including like a bunch of flicker films including like <laughs> literally tony conrad's the flicker uh oh, man i want to buy it now how much flicker is it films for? i'm not i i've got some friends who love flicker films i have a bit of a sensitivity to that shit so they're not my favorite thing in the world but those that last 10 minutes of lexa turn man when the fucking lights are going off i'm losing my fucking mind the blu-ray is 33 dollars i'll have to yeah, think on that yeah. i know I know it is. I haven't bought it yet. Well, I love like it makes sense because I I will I probably watch the intro. I probably watch the the front credits to um Enter the Void like once famously every, plagiarized every by Hype Williams. <laughs> yeah, like literally for the all like, Kanye video. West. Kanye West was just like fuck this yeah. man, Casper. No, <laughs> it's mine now. Um, right. Okay, where are we? <laughs> we we yeah. got up. <laughs> uh okay we shame you got that one right? we always get so loopy at the end of these recording guys 2000 2008 2008 i don't what even came out it's another comedic it's another comedic oh this is screen sir marshall yeah yeah it was a watershed moment for penises on screen it was a big fucking deal when that happened it was i like it's it. like a mainstream comedy yeah you, know, you never see penises in that you never see penises in those yeah until you get to um um then uh was it the night before the christmas movie is there a penis in the night before? There's like, there's like a, a dick pic of James Franco's erect penis that like oh keeps getting brought up. I, <laughs> James Franco's in the night before? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Wild. Have you seen that movie? I saw it in theaters. I have no memory of James Franco or his penis being in that movie. So like early in the movie, um, Seth Rogen takes like a shit ton of drugs and he accidentally 
they like bump into Mindy Kaling and they yes. accidentally take each other's phones. And oh. this guy keeps sending Mindy Kaling dick pics, but Seth oh, Rogen thinks he's sending him dick pics. And Seth Rogen is responding to him like, yeah, it's a nice dick. And he's like, it's almost so big. I don't even know what to think about it. It's a, it's a pretty <laughs> funny bit. Um, but uh, those are those are the only moments of like male penis that I can remember in like mainstream comedy. The I don't think right it's in the theatrical edition, but there's a great dick shot in Walk Hard uh, that I think is only mm. in the unrated cut. Yeah, I don't know if I... I think it might be in the unrated cut. Have you ever seen the unrated cut? No, I've only that's seen the like, theatrical cut. That's like fully the the one case where the unrated cut of these like Apatow movies is actually better. Because uh, like the it's not just that like the extra 30 minutes is better stuff, but it like fleshes out the movie more. But you know there's that scene where he's like casually calling his wife on the phone during the orgy. <laughs> yeah. And... Um, uh, yeah, it's not in the. It's not. I look. I have it here. It's not in the director's cut. And and P, and naked people are walking back and forth. There's a gag where like a naked guy comes up, walks up to him when he's on the phone, and like asks me if he wants anything for breakfast. And in <laughs> in the in the unrated cut, because he's sitting on the floor, this guy just like walks into frame, and his penis is just right next to um, John C. Riley's face. Well, John C. Riley's having this phone conversation, and they just have like a back and forth, and you never see above the guy's waist, and he's like keeps walking in and out. It's it's a good gag. Oh my god! I mean, obviously that's a stunt, but it's a funny stunt. I just want more penises on screen. You know, you, I, just just to just to say it real quick, because I'm remembering now. The I remember that. So back to the night before, the way they got the movie accepted as rated R was like Seth Rogen had to go and convince. Um, the MPAA that the penis was not erect (laughs) like it clearly is but they had to like shoot the dick pic in an angle that made it look like it was gravity like like holding it in that angle and Seth Rogen had to like go and make a case to the MPAA that it like it wasn't erect it was just like the gravity I remember that way I remember thinking that movie was like fine it it's for a seasonal comedy that like you may watch around Christmas time when you're looking for something just like uh, I watched that one stuff. once. Yeah, Jonathan Levine has a bizarre career. Oh yeah, I think about his directorial career all the time. It's so weird. Uh, Long shot, the last real movie. Before, the last real movie before Disney ruined everything. Just the last real movie. Yeah. The last room. <laughs> Sorry, oh. if you're bitching about rom coms not being on the big screen, that's your fault for not seeing Long Shot opening weekend like this guy did. I did not. So yeah, yeah, you're, you're, you're the fucking reason Ghosted exists. It's on okay. you. Ghosted is your fault. <laughs> the next, the next movie is 2007. Um, Seven. you've seen this movie. I know you've I seen, this, seen movie. this movie. I have yeah. seen this movie. Is it an yeah. Oscar movie? Is it an Oscar movie? I. Uh, table that one. It could be, very well could be. Um, I think it. I think it was NC seventeen. Um, in two thousand seven, we've talked about this director today. We've talked about this director today. Yeah. In what context? Uh, a certain uh leading male performance that compares to. On the, oh yes, of yeah. course, of course, of course. David Ehrlich writes for IndieWire. <laughs> I gotta, <laughs> I gotta pull up a quote real quick. The movie is less caution. Yes. <laughs> yeah, the movie's less caution. So you know, uh, 
there's that's one of those movies like um uh don't look now the nicholas rogue movie where like there are persistent and continual rumors uh that oh yeah uh, they're actually having unsimulated sex because yeah. those sex scenes are so explicit isn't there um, also a mickey rourke one that people always talk about uh angel heart mm, maybe. maybe that was just really explicit so I just love, I, I always, I am constantly like once a week, I think about these two quotes on the Wikipedia page um, from Lust Caution. Caution. Uh, now I assume what's going on here is a poor translation from, is it Mandarin or Cantonese uh, that they speak in Hong Kong? I, I have uh, no idea. I think they yeah. speak, I think they speak Cantonese. Okay. Cantonese, whatever. Cause yeah. this is in English, but apparently when asked on the subject of, were you actually having sex in that movie? Tony Lung said, when the bodies collide with each other, it is indeed like a fake show. Yet Tong Wei said, in the movie, we are doing just what we should do to have a baby. <laughs> so Tong Wei says she was actually having sex with Tony Lung, and Tony Lung said that they weren't. Oh but God. those sex scenes are fucking well. You know that like ruined Tong Wei's career, right? Yeah. Like Tony Lung got off scot free. Tong Wei got fucking ethered. That's why most of the big movies she's made since then are not in. That's China what Pro. happens, man. Like Chloe Savigny. Yeah. Too. Yeah, it's different though. I mean, it's also that like she straight up married a Korean dude. Yeah, uh, also that. Yeah, she's so fucking good in fucking decision to leave. Fuck. Let me say something about a home at the end of the world that I just remembered now, but I didn't get a chance yeah. to say it's it is it is interesting if you're like interpreting this Bobby character as asexual to some extent that like he only loves he only loves sexually because that is what he has been taught to be an expression of love in the way that the people he loves expects from him is it's it is a bold move to cast the man who at the moment is like the most virile man in Hollywood to play yes. that character. Ebert, Ebert says in his review that he's like part of the reason why he's so strict with this performance is it's such a break. He from... compares it to Monster. He compares yeah. it to uh, Charlize in, in Monster. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but I think that's, I mean, I think that's a fair point to make. Like, yeah, like it's, it's a bold performance for Colin to make for many reasons, for many reasons. Before yeah. we finish this game, I just want to say like, this is where we really start beginning what I've been anticipating us like coming to a head with, which is Colin giving good performances in films. And and this film doesn't like fit the bill, but we're going to start hitting some where it's like he gives good, suitable performances in films that on paper, when you look at the people involved, should be really good films that like should be in awards contention and should be like critically adored and set Colin up for a a nice couple of following years. Yet they tend to be like the worst of said director's career or the worst of seen said screenwriter's career. Yeah. <laughs> it's like he's kind of just falling into place at the wrong moment in time for a lot of these collaborators that he's working with. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, you're, you're saying. This is kind of one of them. If you're thinking about like Cunningham, it's like if yeah. Colin was in the hours, it would have been well, great. And yeah. that would have that would have shotgunned them into so many more projects. But instead he was in this. 
you know, yeah. that nobody this, saw. This, this does, I think, the, the, the non-existence of this movie, I think, does hurt his career. I Definitely. Uh, I mean, the double whammy, that, the double whammy of this year is yeah. like for something that we just spoke about um, with Ben Affleck to like just come right back around. And yeah. uh, this movie had a six and a half million dollar budget and it made one and a half million dollars. Yeah. But that. that's I mean, I don't think that's necessarily embarrassing. Ale- Alexander's more embarrassing. The Alexander, new world is almost a little more embarrassing. Alexander is the type of embarrassment where we're going to get into it next week, but just like the prelude from, from what I remember having watched that film. And from what I know of like the reception of the film at the time when it was made, you is that you have a guy like Oliver Stone who almost does not miss, like even the films that aren't winning Oscars, they're still making a ton of money. They're still um, like, I love any given Sunday. Any given Sunday is a messy. We're, no, we're, we're, we'll we'll, we'll yeah. talk about it, <laughs> but but the thing is, like what what Jamie Fox is asked to do in any given Sunday makes Jamie Fox look good, regardless as to any given Sunday being a good movie or not. What Colin is asked to do in Alexander only works if the movie works, and when the movie doesn't work, we'll it makes him look like a terrible actor. About okay. it. All right, let's move on. Let's I, move I on. think that's I think that's our episode this week. Let's move on to 2007. No, no, let's call. Let's no, call, do let's call. do two more because there's one that you love. Like is you it have to name. Bus? Yes, so you have to. It's get great. To your it's movie. short bus. It's 2006. Okay. Short bus is the best movie ever made. It's my favorite. Uh, oh, and my dogs are out, and they're tearing. Okay, I actually need to call this because if the dogs are out, that means the mic might get pulled off the table at some point. All right. Um. All right. Catch us later, people. That was our episode. Connor plugged the Instagram at the at above the title pod. Yep. Uh, next week, we will be. Do we have to? Do we really have to do it? I really don't want to do it. Dan Moore. <laughs> no, that's not what I don't want to do. To be clear. I don't want. I don't want to think about fucking Alexander. Next Dude, week, we get to do so many uh, not rush wars <laughs> next week. Yeah, uh, <laughs> next week, we're doing Alexander. Um, uh, looking like we're going to be talking about the ultimate cut, which is the three and a half hour one. Uh, that sounds like the way we're going, but who knows? Until then, fuck HIV. Fuck uh, pain glass sliding doors. Stop it, I'll die.